0: hey james what's up tim both of the movies we watched for the podcast today the core and sunshine they involve a team of scientists traveling to either the earth's core or the core of the sun to detonate a nuclear bomb in the hopes of getting them working again is that what my trainer means when he tells me to work better on engaging my core tim i think you're being super critical Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And I'm joined today in the podcast studio over Zoom with returning special guest, James Sheehan a recovering transatlantic and terrorism policy practitioner turned tabletop gaming professional. Uh, You know what? Actually, no scratch that. James, you're not so special anymore, at least not in the guest sense. James will be joining me moving forward as my regular co-host for the podcast. Welcome back and welcome as co-host. Thanks,
1: Tim. I'm very excited to be joining as co-host. You've kindly invited me and I've kindly accepted the invitation. I am a huge fan of the podcast. Uh it was great to be on to discuss the the Star Trek Smart Bomb episode last year. So this this is great and you've invited me on and now I'm just on. So uh I'm, I'm you know it's like I'm like a vampire. Once I've been invited inside it's it's uh I can't be I can, I can enter
0: whatever I like. Yeah, um, you so you like... have the Zoom link. I can't and I, I'm too not bothered to I can't be yeah. bothered to change it.
1: I'm thrilled to be on today and for future future shows um this is sunshine is is You know, a a film we've talked about before. I've I've told you my feelings about it, not to spoil uh, what we'll discuss later. But I couldn't think of a better way to uh, become acquainted as a host with the podcast and the core. You encouraged me to watch it last year. I did, Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, rewatching it this this week for the podcast was a lot of fun. So these are two great titles, and um, hopefully, the you know the many more to come after this. So these, but this is a great way, great way to great way to come on board. So thanks a lot.
0: Well, no worries. Well, if people are listening, wondering where Gabe is, you know, don't worry about it. He's not like in a fallout shelter somewhere or flying his plane lost over the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, He just had a baby. So congrats to him. Uh, Certainly that makes things tricky to schedule uh, these past couple of months uh, since we haven't done an episode in a little while. Uh, So he's going to retire from regular hosting duties. We will definitely have him on again at some point in the year as a guest. And this is also an interesting reflection point for me. Sorry before we get into the full uh, parts of the episode. Uh, I've been doing the show since 2016. It was always my goal. I thought it would be cool if I can get to 100 episodes. So this is episode 71 of the quote-unquote normal episodes. And I also did 12 mini-nuke episodes, which were kind of a dumb idea because they were tended to be also as long as a regular episode because we just ramble. But uh, if I did the math on that right, I've got about at least 17 left to do. So that's the target before I can retire. I may have, or at least uh, keep the, maybe going at a less regular pace. Um, but we'll see. I think I got 17 good stuff to talk about. James has got a bunch of great ideas. So we'll see. We're going to hit 100 and then we'll see where we're at. I'm really excited to have you as this portion of the the stage of the podcast history. Because you've got, James, your own kind of movie-related goals for the year, you want to tell us a little bit about these pretty ambitious targets?
1: I would love to. So uh, back at the beginning of the year, I decided, you know what, it's uh, I'm over TV. There's a lot of great series out there. I've watched a lot of great series. You've discussed some great series on this this program. But I'm like, you know what? Movies. <laughs> Two hours, three hours. In the case of the one you and I saw last Thursday, this, around this time, four hours. Yep. Uh, we saw yeah. The Return of the King uh, re- remastered for for uh theatrical release in the extended edition so that's that's a long one but i was like i'm all in movies 2023 so yeah so i had this i think unreasonable goal uh (laughs) of watching 600 movies in 2023 uh, um and collecting 400 blu-rays because i love physical media i've always loved like cds and records and dvds and stuff and i'm like you know what i want i want the, the stuff um because sometimes you know they take it off services and you can't Uh, You can't find it. And then sometimes a lot of things you can't even um, like, for example, the movie airheads You literally can't watch that movie anywhere right now. So I'm I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of the stuff disappearing or not subscribing to a service or disappearing from a service. So anyway, 600 films screened, 400 blue eyes collected. So my wife correctly informed me that perhaps this was overreaching um, Hmm. and that, you know, uh, I'm having a kind of a lighter stretch in my professional life at the moment. That's going to change soon. But even so that's, you know, over you know a t- two films a day is is a lot, um, even if sometimes you're not you're not watching them you're, you're just watching one. So uh, anyway, so as of today, uh, I own 318 movies across 299 Blu-ray discs um, and four K discs, and um, I basically have everything I want to own at this point. Picking up little things as I see them in, in shops or online. Today, I watched Sunshine in preparation for this podcast. Rewatched it, and that was my 151st feature film. Um, In 110 days of 2023. So if I keep to that pace, I'll I'll hit 500 for the year. I'm not going to, I have a new job starting next week. So my time is going to be a little more, a little more of a premium, but I hope to maybe, I think I could still hit like the 300 mark or 350, maybe 400 watched. Um, I even watched another one today. I watched <laughs> Sunshine by Danny Boyle, and then I watched Train Spotting by Danny Boyle, right? After it. So um I've seen 152 for the year, Sunshine being my 151st. So yeah, so that's that's the goal. Uh so that's my that's what qualifies me to be on the podcast, basically.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, um definitely the ratio and that uh number of both owned and watched in terms of nuke movies is definitely gonna tick up a, quite a bit. I think so. I'm excited to help you with that particular uh, ratio because I felt really it was it was off. Yeah. To help James get to this very ambitious goal, uh, we are going to do a double whammy episode as James kind of started at the beginning here. Uh, we're going to talk about two films where nuclear weapons are called upon to save the earth from some sort of horrible natural disaster. But those nukes need to be first brought to different places other than the earth's surface where they tend to mostly be bad for people. First one of these movies we're going to talk about is The Core from 2003. This is where Earth's molten core has stopped spinning, and apparently that's bad. Uh, So they dig a hole and nuke it into spinning again. And then we're going to talk about Sunshine from 2007, where the Earth's sun has stopped being hot. And apparently this is also bad. So we're going to fly there in a spaceship and nuke it into being hot again. Uh, I think thematically, these are kind of fun movies to think about. We have some reveals here and there after watching them back-to-back. This is somewhat similar to an episode I did several years ago with my friend Boris, uh, where we covered three movies that dealt with nuclear weapons being used against rocks in space, such as Armageddon, Deep Impact, and Meteor. So... This is great. This is a good way to package these together. Uh, James and I are going to talk uh, briefly about each movie's backstory, and then we'll get into the plot. W- James will cover Sunshine. We'll all walk through the core. And uh, while we do this, and kind of near the end, we're going to have essentially two questions I think will be interesting to cover. The first of which is, how do these movies, along with others in this quote-unquote nukes good to save the Earth genre, what is the line that sometimes these movies have to walk where they recognize that nuclear weapons are dangerous they're lethal to humans they're maybe not the best thing but in this situation they're great and they're uh feel like a hero kind of role how do they make that balance if they try to and secondly how useful would these weapons actually be in either of these world ending scenarios uh james anything else you want to preview for everybody as we get into this
1: no i think those are great discussion questions i also have some some takes that i'm excited to share in the the parking lot mm-hmm. parking lots is this portion of this this episode and uh yeah, so I, I won't I won't spoil anything now. I think we'll come to all with through the discussion, but uh, I'm excited to dive in and run through the plots for our listeners and then head into the parking lot.
0: Sounds great. Well let's uh let's dig in uh and we'll start with the core. Um so as a reminder, uh, as we go through the plot of these movies, spoiler warning, if you have not seen these films from the uh the two thousands, they're available in different places. I think Sunshine is available for streaming in a couple different locations right now. For free. I had to buy the core again, um, 4K, because I couldn't find my DVD copy I bought several years ago. So now I can and really it, watch that movie perfectly.
1: And a note on the Sunshine Blu-ray, uh, it's known, it's sort of infamously known as one of the worst produced Blu-rays of all time. Ooh. Um it when they released it, it uh there's no way to watch it without also I think playing the director's commentary. Like it's a it's a broken disc.
0: Oh wow. They were, they were
1: all broken in like whenever it came out 2008 or something like came out in 2007 but then the whenever the blu-ray came out maybe a year later they allowed people to send them back and they would send you a replacement disc you could no longer do that i had actually not watched this film on my (laughs) blu-ray cup i own until today so i didn't know whether i had one of the cursed discs because i bought it secondhand on ebay or whether and what uh, was
0: it what was it it was it worked so i have
1: i've got a proper disc i don't have one of the broken discs but I like this movie, so I own it in, in another format as well. So I had a backup. Uh, nice. Well, <laughs> just I... a little, you know, a little formatting uh, t- uh, side note there for for listeners. If you're gonna buy a Sunshine Blu-ray, figures you know, you're, you're rolling the dice.
0: <laughs> yeah, you either you got to make sure you like Danny Boyle's uh, um, British yeah. accent, right? <laughs> so the core was directed by John Emil. Uh, I think it's his last name. The only other movie I really know him from is Entrapment. That movie that you're aware of with the crazy laser scene, and uh, I think it's Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, this movie was made with a budget of $85 million in early 2000s, quite a bit. Uh, it made $74 million in the global box office, so, uh, not, not particularly great. This one has a pretty low Rotten Tomatoes, critic score of 40% rotten, but Roger Ebert loved it. I think he gave it two and a half out of four stars and said, I don't know how, but for some reason I love it. And like said he was hard to convince people to not go see this movie even despite the fact that it was it's very silly all right so we'll get into the plot here for the core
2: it was a secret government program known as project destiny We're building a weapon that could generate targeted seismic events designed to use earthquakes to attack our enemies i'm getting a seismic reading it was a perfect untraceable weapon destiny is a go until something went wrong i'll put this as simply as i can Everybody on Earth is dead in a year. The core of the Earth has stopped spinning. The spinning core protects us from cosmic radiation. Without it, radiation will create superstorms. Microwaves will literally cook our planet. How could this have happened? It was Project Destiny. We killed the planet. So, how do we fix it? We can't. The core is the size of Mars. You're talking about jump-starting a planet. What if we could? We're here about your legendary ship. I can't wait to get into an untested ship, go to the center of the Earth, and restart its core with a thousand megatons of nuclear weapons. Then we outrun the biggest shockwave in history. Hot damn. San Francisco is in ruins. The whole west coast is out. And it's decaying faster Three, than we thought.
3: Two, one. We're going in.
2: Whoever goes into the court is not coming back.
0: We start off on Earth Day in Boston. And, oh, this is actually really good timing because Earth Day is Saturday, right? Here. There you go. When we're recording this, so perfect timing. I, I definitely planned this. So this takes place in Boston, and there's chaos in the streets. Random people are passing out for no real reason. There's car crashes. They're disrupting business meetings. How How dare they? What's going on? Fortunately, though, back at this university, this character named Josh Keys, played by Aaron Eckhart, uh, has one of the best chins in Hollywood. He is a college geophysics professor, and he's like teaching everybody about, you know, sound waves and the Earth's crust and all of this, and he gets brought in by the FBI and military people to talk about what just happened, all of these people dying kind of out of nowhere. Uh, This military guy led by Richard Jenkins, uh, another great character actor, great, uh, more than character actor, but he represents the military trying to figure out what's going on here.
1: Yeah, and I actually, this is one of those scenes where I'm actually upset that they cut off his lecture. I, I actually want to see what he's talking about. It's, it's, <laughs> he, he plays the college professor really well. What he's doing with the sound waves is actually kind of fascinating. Sure. They cut, him, they cut him off at like a really interesting point. Second time I watched this movie, I'm like, well, show me the experiment. I want to see what happens.
0: So I'm not. I'm not a um a geophysics uh expert or anything, but the articles that I was reading about the science behind this movie, like we'll talk about it when we get later to into these topics. But they were saying that this was complete, absolute nonsense that he was okay. talking about. But <laughs> that's probably why. It's so (laughs) but that's why he's an actor that's why he's an actor (laughs) Aaron Eckhart's Josh Keys gets brought into this room, and he meets one of his, like, French scientist buddies named Serge, and they notice all of a sudden they're in a room full of 32 bodies, people who had died during this situation, and Aaron Eckhart pretty quickly realizes all of these people had pacemakers, something messed with them, like a, an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse thing, and the military is wondering, is this a weapon? Could this have been something that someone attacked us with? Aaron Eckhart was like, "Nope, not possible, no way, and then they're like, fine, great. Never mind then see ya, and they just don't care anymore because if it's not a weapon, it, for some reason they don't really want to get to the bottom of why this happened. Um, anyways, uh, I'm not gonna get into the nitpick every time the science in this movie is off, but you can have a pacemaker. It could fail. You're fine. <laughs> depends how bad your heart is. Pacemakers help keep your heart in a rhythm, but they don't like, it's not like um, Tony Stark in Iron Man. It's not like a thing that keeps you alive (laughs) in that way, but nevertheless. But Aaron Eckhart still wants to figure this out because other weird stuff is happening in London. Thousands of birds freak out and start flying into people's uh, cars and buildings. This is happening in Japan and everywhere else. Eckhart's figured it out. He's He figured it out um, that it's something to having to do with the Earth's magnetic field, and he's willing to commit academic fraud uh, in order to find out, meaning he says he's going to pass all of his uh, doctoral candidates without even reviewing their, their dissertation. So this is the character that we got as our hero.
1: And he's going to exploit free labor from <laughs> yeah. other other PhD or master students <laughs> to, like... He's like, yeah, pull out all the smart kids from this class, all the smart kids from this class. And it's like, uh, buddy, come on, you know?
0: Yeah. But, you know, I guess it's for a good cause. Uh, sure. We're, this is what's going on in Boston. What's happening in outer space?
1: Yeah, so we jump cut to outer space, uh, to the U.S. Space Shuttle. You remember those, Tim?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I missed, we was, saw the big, the big, uh, start a uh, SpaceX rocket launch today, but I missed those space shuttles. They were, they were, they were peak. Peak
1: nineties, uh, I guess peak eighties, like aesthetic. I really liked how they look. They look like a big, a big coach bus mm-hmm. um, that <laughs> that went into space. So the space shuttle uh, goes for re-entry to the atmosphere with Major Beck Childs, played by Hilary Swank, on board as the co-pilot. The shuttle goes off course and ends up flying over the over Los Angeles and uh, a Dodgers game. Oh, I, I love that scene. They they fly over the L.A. River. It's kind of one of those iconic shots that you see in a lot of movies where the L.A. River. It's basically that looks like a drainage canal, mm-hmm. uh, concrete. Uh, the river is pretty low that day, uh, fortunately because of drought. And uh, they're able to land, they land it and they kind of crash it directly into these uh, kind of a rig that a couple construction guys are working on. And It's like one of those scenes where the you know construction guy kind of looks in the window of the shuttle and they look out and it's like uh, <laughs> this sort of like uh, aliens have landed, but <laughs> it's kind, yep. of, kind, of, kind of scenes. To editorialize a little bit here, I think this this entire plot line is, is unnecessary and preposterous. Um,
0: it sets the tone for the movie pretty, pretty good. It's like, yeah, we're just going to land the space shuttle in a, in a drainage ditch. Uh, but that's how good our heroes are. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. I guess it shows that she's like the best pilot, you know, it's, 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 but it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting scene and it kind of introduces Hillary Swank as the, as the pilot. Um, and we'll, we'll learn more about her later. Um, but you, then know, every, you
0: know, movies where you want to show someone as a good character, you save the cat, right? Isn't that uh, the old phrase where you show someone saving a cat and you know that's, that's a good person? Uh, if you want to know someone's a really good pilot, you land the shuttle.
1: That's true. That's true. And I guess it's, you know, that's the filmmaking cliche, you know, show, don't tell. My, my brain is, like, wired. It's like, just tell us she's the best pilot and I'll, I'll believe you. <laughs> that's, <laughs> but, but, that's fine. Uh, uh, but then we're back to the research, right? So...
0: Yeah, so, uh, so Josh Keys figures out what's going on. He goes to try to find this like celebrity, top-notch scientist, Dr. Conrad Zimski, played brilliantly in this movie by Stanley Tucci. Tucci is very dismissive, but he's kind of scared. Uh, he doesn't really know what this conclusion is, which could be the end of the world, that something's happening to the uh, Earth's magnetic um Uh, protection, at the the earth magnetic fields around it. So Tucci goes home, he freaks out a little bit more after reading these results and he opens up a file cabinet, pulls out some classified materials to read. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a subplot of him getting in trouble with the FBI and National Archives, but uh, he just has these classified files and it seems like he knows something. This
1: is also where they introduce the only character building elements around Stanley Tucci's character, I would say, which are that he is a, (laughs) a massive jerk and he loves cigarettes, <laughs> yeah. And that's that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, he, yep. he, he sort of plays those two things out for the rest of the two hours and fifteen minutes of the movie. Sorry to interrupt.
0: <laughs> no worries. He gets a lot out of that. We meet again this military guy from earlier. Uh, he knows um, uh, Major Beck Childs, uh, Hillary Swank's character. Um, he meets, you know, he basically says like, "Hey, uh, you might get fired here because the, you messed up the shuttle." Because they don't know why they went off course and why the shuttle was all screwed up and everything. Uh, But, you know, we'll learn here because the sky is starting to get weird. There are these high-altitude static discharges, the movie says, causing, you know, crazy lights up in the sky. Uh, And then we realize something's off. So Tucci brings in, because he's the big top military scientist guy, he brings in Josh Keys. He's (laughs) very noticeably drunk, as you put here in the notes. um, But then very quickly sobers up. Yeah, I mean,
1: I'm... You know, when I go to a meeting at the Pentagon, I'm probably half as drunk. Um, so so four beers each on the table because he's with his French... Um, and
0: to be fair, he was drinking because he thought the world was ending.
1: Right. They were, drink- they were like doing apocalyptic level drinking, like the world is going to end drinking. So no judgment there. Um, but yeah, four beers, four shots each. FBI comes in. They haul him right into the Pentagon. And all of a sudden he's sober as a ge- geologist <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah he's not crusty anymore um, no. <laughs> so he's there he's explaining about how the electromagnetic fields around the earth's falling apart it's going to be bad uh it's going to expose everybody to cosmic radiation uh why well he thinks the outer core of the earth's of the earth the inner the inner core of the outer core uh he says the outer core that they say spins like liquid is slowing down and no longer spinning so this is going to be bad it's going to destroy the electric magnetic field and cause the world to end uh in a couple of months there'll be super storms um all of the electronics can be destroyed solar wind and radiation will cook the planet in a year not particularly great and you know just because maybe these military people who have a career in um catching things on fire and exploding don't understand that concept he has to take a literal peach cut it in half describe what a peach pit is and then light it on fire with a lighter and be like see it's like this uh, That's right. so they they get the concept now i also i did think it was funny because while i was watching this i was like oh a pit like a nuclear warhead core uh, which was actually named after a peach pit uh, or like a fruit pit so i was like oh that well, all fits um, science wise to slightly nitpick this the electromagnetic field going away would like suck because There is some protection it provides to solar wind, um, but it doesn't really do much independently than our atmosphere does for things like microwaves, which the sun doesn't really produce that much uh, microwave radiation, mostly visible light and things like that. But it's just funny. It would hurt electronics, like the movie says, but it wouldn't necessarily impact human health as much as other things. They kind of confuse the uh, electromagnetic field for the ozone layer. Like, a hole in the ozone would be bad for letting in cosmic radiation a lot more than losing the electric. Because if you look at, like, history, the electromagnetic field has, like, changed multiple times over the course of human, not Earth's history. And they did not cause mass extinction events. But nevertheless, the movie posits that it's bad, and I imagine it wouldn't be great. Yeah, I mean, there'd be no more podcasts. Fair there. that would be enough
1: yeah i think this movie tries to do it's i don't want to say it's high concept but it it, it makes the audience think about something at the center of the earth affecting what's happening
0: mm-hmm.
1: from space and I, and I think for a lot of hollywood audiences that's like maybe a bridge too far like the other film we're <laughs> talk about tonight is sunshine where it gets really cold that's the, yeah yeah, yeah. You, you could kind of you could you could wrap your head around that you yeah, yeah, that? yeah yeah okay and then like armageddon it's like big rock hits earth everything dies but this is like well this thing is spinning mm-hmm. inside the earth and if that doesn't spin then these other factors it's a little i mean even for you know i'm not i don't want to uh criticize like the modern american or or even global movie viewing audience but it's like just a an inch too technical i think for like it to be snappy so i think they have to make it like you're saying they have to make it seem yeah. like much more ominous and apocal- apocalyptic than perhaps it is
0: on a first read if you're not following some of this stuff it perfectly tracks uh But if if people are wondering why we are talking about this from a nuclear weapons podcast, uh, well, here we go. So the military wants a solution, but Keyes is like, I don't know, man. You got to find some way to restart the Earth's core. I don't know how to do that. And you have to get to the Earth's uh, core, which I don't know how to get there. Tucci has a solution. So uh, at least for that second problem, he (laughs) stole the research of this guy he used to work with, uh, Dr. Braz, uh, many years ago, who developed this uh, ship tool called eventually calls virgil that can use ultrasonic waves or something else whatever to dig holes really good kind of like melts or liquefies the rock in front of it and the things can fly through and then it solidifies again Uh, and you test this out the the desert and and like uh, impresses them pretty good he also conveniently invented this material called unobtainium that kind of fun science term movie term of We need some sort of magic doohickey metal that can solve this problem. Let's call it unobtainium.
3: I combine the crystals in a tungsten titanium matrix at super cool temperatures. That's what did the trick. The applications for this
2: What do you call this material? I call it unobtainium.
1: Unobtainium, Mm hmm? The the unobtainium will take the heat and the pressure and transform it to energy, which in turn will reinforce the shell. So the hotter and the deeper she gets, the
0: stronger she gets. Theoretically, Theoretic. like they do in avatar and if they put it around the the digging machine. It also apparently can absorb heat and convert it to energy. So it it, it
1: absorbs heat, converts it to energy. It also the more pressure it's under yeah, stronger the stronger, it the stronger
0: it gets. Yeah. Sure. That they need that he, someone invented it. Terrific. It's,
1: it's it's a strange metal. It's a, it's it's. There's a lot of like they make like the two science leaps here. That this is where the fiction comes in. I think with the the laser thing and then also with the the hull of the ship or the, or the metal it's made out of.
0: But they have to still solve that first problem of what are they going to do to restart the Earth's core. So here's what they figure out. So after they build this digging ship the super metal and the super laser in front of it. They're going to bring a bunch of nuclear devices, and they're going to explode at the same time and restart the Earth's core, uh, and Zimski thinks just about 2,000 megatons ought to do it. So they say, all right, they're going to take five 200 megaton range nuclear warheads, bring those on board, just the right amount, that's very important, just the exact right amount of weapons that they're going to need, and that's going to do it. Dr. Brazelton will supervise the building of a ship which is capable of reaching the center of
2: our planet. Once there, it will deliver an explosive charge large enough to restart its core. Dr. Zimski will calculate the scale of the explosion needed. This is a program I designed to simulate the effect of nuclear detonations on the core. If my calculations are correct, A tiny nudge in any direction will force the core back into its normal flow. What's a tiny nudge in planetary terms? About a thousand megaton, give or take. Tops, because any more
3: than that would create a core instability. We made a few monster warheads in the 200 megaton range. Brass, do you think the ship can handle five of these babies?
0: Huh? If you would uh, let me jump on this one for a little bit, because this is kind of more in my lane. I thought this was really interesting because there are not two 200 megaton nuclear weapons. They've never existed that we know of. The largest ever tested was 50 megatons. This was the very famous in this people who follow nuclear history, the Tsar Bomba test, uh, the king of all bombs test the Soviet Union did in October 1961. Now, this could have theoretically shifted to 100 megatons if they just configured it a little bit differently. That was the largest ever tested. It weighed about 27 tons. It was a very large deployable device, but quite quite large. A very large bomb, but again, uh, 50, could have been 100, not 200. Uh, the United States only ever deployed Um, maybe a nine megaton bomb. The idea behind this is that the more accurate your missiles can land, the less large your field needs to be so that like you hit your target, you don't need a, a lot of wiggle room and a lot of extra close-only matters in horseshoes and hand grenades kind of thing. Megaton range bombs are pretty pretty scary, but they never got to 200, but okay, in this world they do. Funny enough, when they see uh, the f- weapons being wheeled through uh, and getting ready to be put onto this atomic um, train here, would you believe it? There are French flags on these warheads. I guess Surge... The scientist friend came through and was able to contact some friends over in the French military and got them. On the warhead, this says something really in bad French like atomic commission of energy or something like that. Uh, but I guess that's where they got the bombs. Not sure why they didn't pick them up in the United States or Russia, but heck, the French came through. I think currently, this is more today, these days, not in 2003 when the movie started, the Russians do have a decently sized warhead they could put around. Most of their stuff is around 800 kilotons, which is 1,000 tons on their Russian ICBMs. So there's one, though, called the RS-36, uh, which can carry between 8 and 20 megaton yield, but we don't really know how many they what the size is yeah it is interesting
1: well there is a scene where they they say you know like they show like the inter- international cooperation scene where they show yeah presumably world leaders or scientists flying in and the, and there's some narration over that i think by Aaron eckhart where it's you know this is like a global effort and all this stuff there's no indication of that after that scene <laughs> uh other than the french scientist i think um yep <laughs> um so that's that's sort of I I feel like there's I don't know this I don't, I don't know if the blue, I, I feel like there might be a deleted scene where there's something about like we have we have to get the fissile material from or the bombs from
0: they know how to build in this big so let's have them do it.
1: Right. Maybe there's like there are no, maybe they're doing what you're doing. There are no or 200 megaton weapons and we don't we don't have any that you know about, you know that right. whatever. Right, right. The other thing I think is that maybe again, maybe there's a missing scene where they have to like not inform you know because they're they're really trying to keep a lid on yeah they even hired aware this, aware this
0: hacker it. named rat right. uh, whose job it is to control the flow of information and, and basically censor everything he's one of the bother you know one of the good guys to stop the flow right. of information on the website and to censor everything but
1: this is a classic late 90s early 2000s movie trope where oh yeah you need the hacker the good hacker right yeah the black the black hat turned white hat and it, but it's it is actually legitimately shady they're like they're like, we need you to scrub the internet of any mention of this happening. Yeah, like it is. It is like that scene in uh, Dark Knight at the <laughs> at the end where you know Morgan Freeman's like, you know, this is a total where they use the phones to ping mm-hmm. and you, everyone's phone to ping and make like a sonar map of Gotham. And Morgan Freeman like can't can't abide it, and he's like, you know, I'm done after this is this is over. Spoiler: He wasn't. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and but it's like this this movie this movie does like a way worse thing with like zero moral consideration
0: great crazy <laughs> crazy great stuff I mean, it would have been interesting to form the perspective of nuclear weapons. Uh, yeah, they're pretty bad, but we're going to find a good use for them. And we're going to find ways to, in times of crisis, to cooperate internationally, including these nuclear devices that can really be dangerous. So, uh, Aaron Arkhardt has this where he says, With luck, irony will break for the good guys for once, and the world's biggest weapons of mass
2: destruction will help save the world. The ship will be powered by a small experimental nuclear
0: reactor, and it will be divided into six compartments like cars on a train and the world's biggest weapons of mass destruction will help save the world the ship will be powered also by a small experimental nuclear power reactor which is also really important to know but you know interesting stuff but all right so we have going long here on the court i think getting everything set up for what's going on in the film is more important than the step-by-step that they do once they get dropped in but You know, we see a montage, as we're supposed to in these kind of movies, of training and building. Uh, Maybe a budding relationship between Keys and Beck, potentially. Uh, We see some lightning superstorms. Rome gets toasted. For some reason, the Colosseum, which is made of stone, explodes uh, because it gets hit by lightning. (laughs) And it's time to drop the ship. So I actually kind of think this scene is pretty cool. They decide for some reason that the Mariana Trench is where they want to start. They say it's thinner there, crust wise Turns out that's the exact opposite. It's one of the thickest places uh, where there's crust. But anyways, they decide to go there. So they, they take them out to like this deep drilling looking platform. They have the train. It's on uh, like a space shuttle launching platform, but facing down, which I kind of caught was a, a pretty cool, pretty cool shot. The crew is Keys, Beck, who's the, the co-pilot, Beck's commander from the, the space shuttle, who's the pilot, Zimsky, Surge, and Brass. So they drop the Virgil ship in. Some whales follow them because the laser that they use makes sounds that whales think is singing. It's important, I guess, for later. But anyways, I will fully admit I tried my best to follow this movie. The scenes, maybe it's the special effects, maybe it's whatever... It was really hard to understand what was happening with the ship most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, visually, it seemed more like it was inside a human body, which kind of makes sense because it was an MRI machine that they were using for like imaging. Yeah, it seemed like we were in the movie Space, which is a good one if you haven't seen it yet to add to your list. Dennis Quaid and uh, and Martin Short is in it. Oh, okay. They're like get really small in a spaceship and fly through a human body.
1: Yeah, I I, I was wondering whether this was. A production choice. We don't have the budget to do like a very yeah yeah yeah. Well, the CGI, so we'll just show this stuff like through this kind of weird computer graphic MRI looking screen.
0: Yeah, because it's it's a ship traveling through rock. How visually interesting can that be? Right. But it's just very confusing about what is happening.
1: They do have a few shots in the movie of like later on where they ha- they do sort of like a profile shot of it actually traveling through rock, which is which is good. But I guess like again, I still that would...
0: think that doesn't make. When I watched it, I was like I I, I get it, but it's so confusing. Yeah. It is confusing.
1: Yeah. And to your point about going long on um, the intro here, uh, I don't think that's our fault because this movie has, they don't enter the sea. I I timed it. They don't enter the ocean to go into the earth until 53 minutes in. So (laughs) this movie has 53 minutes of exposition before before we finally into the earth.
0: It's it's like it's like those Willy Wonka movies. The uh, the kids don't enter the chocolate factory until like an hour in.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. You
0: always forget <laughs> that when you put on the movie, you're like, right. The mom sings for like 15 minutes. Okay.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but now I think disaster movies do that. Like Armageddon is guilty of that. But Ar- Armageddon, it's uh, a bit more entertaining to be to be honest. But you know, you got to get the gang together. I, I understand. There's all the pieces that have to work. I will I will stop there because <laughs> when we talk about Sunshine. There's a contrast here, but I will, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you.
0: We're going to jump ahead here, because what happens essentially is we lose crew members here and there uh, to death because they like get into accidents. They end up like finding an empty space, which is kind of insane, inside the Earth where there's like a geode, a Grand Canyon, Crystal Grand Canyon, they call it. They start practicing arming the nuclear devices, or, or the babies, as the French guy puts it. The the launch code is the kids birthday it's a lot you know some fun playing around with some of the the nuclear things here but then there's a big accident there's a whole breach because they fly through diamonds they dig through diamonds and i guess they can't cut through those or whatever but the ship gets hurt the way that the ship works is if a compartment gets destroyed there's like six or seven compartments if it gets destroyed so that the ship maintains its integrity it will automatically like release that part of the train car right the whole thing looks like one long train yes yeah, I,
1: I was gonna say for the listeners it's a, it's a big train
0: big old train uh so yeah. the french gentleman uh, dies after giving the timers to keys because he doesn't make it out um, this causes a little bit of a rift for some of the crew members they keep going with the mission turns out though about 35 hours into the mission once they get close to the earth's core uh it's too thin so the energy waves from earlier with the 2000 megatons of nukes is not enough
2: our speeds jump because the density of the core is different than our estimates it's lighter than we thought Press. yeah Could you please punch the new core density into the equations for the nuclear detonation
3: are you? are telling me the 1,000 megatons of nuclear warheads we hauled down here isn't going to cut it?
2: No. This core material's too thin. What? The energy waves from the explosion won't spread far enough. They'll just bleed away into nothing. That's it. We go
0: home. So they decide, I guess we failed. Ziminski uh, decides, okay, he calls up the military which i guess they could just do even though they're almost in the center of the earth um, the radio reaches to the surface of the earth and they say project destiny is a go and apparently that is a a deep earth seismic trigger initiative something that zaminsky and the military thought that another adversary like russia or china or someone was building so they had to go build their own there's this interesting little aside that zaminsky says where he's like yeah it's a device Deep Earth Seismic Trigger Initiative.
2: We had reason to believe that our enemies were building a weapon that could generate targeted seismic events. They would be able to create massive earthquakes under our territory. No way of telling who did it. So? So, we built one too. MAD. Mutually Assured Destruction. A perfect acronym if ever there was one. Beautiful. They built it first, I built it
0: better. We need one in case they use it against us. And they say that these weapon is so dangerous because the enemy could cause seismic and earth events and earthquakes and we would never be able to know who did it. And I'll just point out, all of that makes sense. But mutually assured destruction doesn't work if you don't know who's attacking you. Because you do not know who to retaliate against. That is literally one of the points behind it. How would you retaliate if there's a big earthquake somewhere that destroys San Francisco? What do you do? You don't know who did it, right? That they just said that. (laughs) Otherwise, if you knew who did it, you would just nuke them, right? You don't have to earthquake attack them. You could destroy them with another whatever. It's just so funny. They literally a second they set it up why they did it. And the military is like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Sure, we need one of these. It's using terms that people are aware of mad mutually assured destruction, retaliation, but if you don't know who's using the weapon against you, you it doesn't matter if you have one it's the same thing as if a, a a country is able to like in the movie some of all fears where we thought maybe the Russians had put a bomb in Baltimore to kill the president, but it was actually this like neo nazi terrorist who used and stole uh, a bomb that was originally from Israel, all this different stuff, and they thought the Russians did it because the guy wanted to start a world war between the u s and Russia it's this attribution problem if they can't figure out who did it using nuclear forensics or f- figuring out where the missile came from or whatever you still are left with that situation i've got all these bombs but i've got no targets so deterrence yeah. the idea of hitting someone if they hit you doesn't exist i
1: think maybe we'll get into it later this film nowadays like a lot of films like this will have like a, a retired military person or retired cia person or ret- someone from like the defense or security space to like kind of be an advisor on the script i don't think they had that person in the writing, writer's room um, is is my guess? Yeah. Um, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I haven't I haven't looked at the credits. Maybe there's a consultant on there. And I'm sorry if you're listening and I'm uh, not
0: giving you due credit. But I'm gonna guess that the person was like a a, a Tim a me in the movie's uh, writing room, and I'm in the back and I'm like, actually, no, that wouldn't make sense with deterrence. And they just turn to me and go, "Shut up! We pay you to sit there. <laughs> Dude, don't want you to say anything because uh, because I would ruin everyone's mood." and and destroy this pretty cool looking stuff. Uh, But anyway, so Keeves believes that Project Destiny may have actually been the reason why the Earth's core stopped spinning, which is probably what's happened, right? Project Destiny is plan B, and keys and team try to build a plan c which is keep on digging keep on trucking to the core and figure out a solution Ziminski tries to argue but he gets punched by brats uh so they keep going all right so because this is a disaster movie of course the san francisco uh golden gate bridge has to be destroyed and it is uh with some cosmic radiation that gets through the whole thing melts but people um are trapped in their cars that's terrible uh traffic is already bad let alone having to be melted anyways we're in the situation we're in a rush to time right we have to figure out a solution before project destiny is used because project destiny would kill everybody aboard the virgil they figure out a solution though Brats and keys and and zaminsky work out a model where they're like oh yeah you know while zaminsky is smoking that cigarette you mentioned earlier he goes like oh yeah, yeah yeah i figured this out we could use wave interference and fluid dynamics to hotwire the nuclear weapons so that they are not exploded in one location but can do five separate sequenced explosions. And I thought as soon as they said this, my brain was like you were going to explode all of the weapons at the exact same time? Because yeah. it doesn't matter how well you time these things. It's mi- it's milliseconds. Tiny little seconds for the weapon to explode and destroy the other ones. There's no perfect timing yeah. in that front. It's called fratricide side in nuclear war planning when you want to put two warheads on a target, you have to time them really well so the second one doesn't come in and get destroyed before it has a chance of exploding on its own. But anyways, they just to time it so that
1: no one left alive is a nuclear physicist or yeah. uh a weapons expert these are two geologists yep. and a, a pilot
0: and they're not like <laughs> this isn't apollo 13 they're not calling back to houston and, no. and, and troubleshooting stuff uh they didn't they didn't call like uh oppenheimer's uh long lost uh cousin or something and, and work it out on the ground there's well, no photo friend no 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 <laughs> but they decide they're gonna hotwire them so that they explode and then like further down they explode another one okay so they rewire the nukes this is 42 hours into the mission they're almost there at the earth's core they decide that they're going to store each of the weapons in one of the virgil compartments so they like drop the compartments while they're Uh, digging further down or across the liquid core. This causes Bratz to have to sacrifice himself, so he does. Uh, He reconciles with Sabinski. I actually kind of like that reconciliation scene. That that was kind of nice. Essentially, they, they do this, and they say it has to be timed to the millisecond, and then they will outrun the the shockwave. One of the craziest things I have ever seen in a, in a nuclear movie that really, really got me annoyed. I'm sorry this is coming across terribly. But, like, they figure out that they need more warhead yield. The calculation was a little bit off because they didn't factor for something. Um, they need the bomb to be 30% bigger. MRI bias, they called it. So they have to make a bigger bomb, but they don't have six to seven p- pounds of plutonium sitting around. So what they essentially decide to do is to take the core, the plutonium core of their nuclear power reactor that they have there. Again, probably actually not a plutonium core, because not the kind of thing you would put in for this kind of a, a reactor. But anyways, they just take the plutonium core out, carry it, and attach it next to the other bomb. Sure. Josh,
2: for the last bomb to make it larger, use the fuel rods from the reactor.
1: That is insane. You mean that doesn't work? That doesn't no. work too?
0: You can't just take more <laughs> plutonium and put it next to a warhead and be like, no, it's a bigger bomb. It's not like attaching a more C4 to a block of C4 that's going to explode. Or it's not like putting an extra barrel of gasoline next to an explosion to make the boom bigger. Nuclear warheads are configured in a very particular configuration, that only happens when the atoms are very closely compacted together. Otherwise, it's too much open space. So they're stored for safety reasons in non-critical configurations. They're stored in a way so that there's open space there's not spontaneous fission they don't explode but you have to compact them really closely then start the reaction and particular with the plutonium bombs it's very important that you design those things what's called an implosion bomb it's a circle you take it from the size of say like a volleyball, and it gets compressed to the size of a golf ball then it explodes It's very odd, but you have to have the right shaped explosives to convince it down. Otherwise, you don't get the right yield you want. What you're going to get with this situation of bringing a barrel of plutonium next to another nuclear bomb that's exploding is you get a dirty bomb. You get more plutonium dispersion, but that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to make the bomb bigger. Right. Anyways. I know they don't care about having the Earth's uh core being, you know, more radioactive or whatever. It's just I'm watching this thing and it's like that's why have this scene in there? It doesn't add anything except it takes the power away from the ship and leaves uh our, our last two crew members back and keys left kind of uh powerless floating in liquid lava and the earth's core. And that was I was watching this and I was like, that just doesn't make any sense in a uh, people watching it are done a disservice, but maybe then no one cares. I just thought it was really funny. Yeah,
1: I think it's one of those, you know, the writers were like, Well more is more is better.
0: More yeah. is bigger. There's few um, movies that make me just completely irrationally complain about stuff. This was one of one of them.
1: <laughs> well I think later you'll allude to um how the scientific community feels about the film. So yeah, yeah i yeah. Spoil
0: that. <laughs> I mean, it, we'll get into it, but spoiler alert, it, it, uh, it upset, um, Dustin Hoffman and that's not something you do. Well, he's my favorite scientist. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So finally, finally, just to wrap up the movie really quickly, Virgil doesn't have enough energy. Like we said to get home after the bombs explode, our, the earth is flowing. The molten callers is, is spinning. That's, that's terrific. Uh, everyone at the command center starts cheering, which is always a fun, a fun sight. Love a command center scene. Love a command center scene. 12, minutes bombs blast is going to hit virgil and destroy them but they figure out they can use the unobtainium the metal around the hull of the ship to convert the heat that is around them into energy they do that like very quickly and convert the power all of that stuff and they're able to fly away and and get out get away they they get kind of stuck by the the bottom of uh i guess they don't have the laser working anymore but they don't need it because they just find that they can just use the magma flows to get home mm-hmm. don't know why they didn't come in that way if they can leave that way the main thing is that they enter the earth's crust and uh kind of get stuck um like 300 feet or so underwater near hawaii no one knows that they're there no one can find them because the power is out but they use the machine. I thought they were out of power, but they use the sonic waves or whatever to make a bunch of whales come by and sing to them. And Rat, our hacker character, is able to figure out that they have to go find the whales.
1: Dramatic scene. Aircraft carrier is pulling away from the, the search zone. They've given up. And uh, Rat, uh, our, our hacker character, played by TJ Qualls, I think is the actor's yeah, name. Yeah you've seen him in he was in road trip he's in a lot of kind of raunchy mm-hmm. early out to of, our league, out of your league he, yeah yeah he's always like the nerdy nerdy guy that's he definitely has uh, an archetype but just screaming at the top of his lungs on the, the, the deck of the aircraft carrier you gotta burn the whales! <laughs> just it's, it's 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 absurd but
0: <laughs> well, speaking of being on top of a, an aircraft carrier so what I was reminded of was Star Trek 4, the voyage home, that scene where Chekhov and crew of uh, the Enterprise have to go back to Earth's past to save some whales and bring them back to the future to talk to a spaceship don't worry about it, uh, but Chekhov <laughs> Starts running around to people because they're looking for a nuclear powered aircraft carrier to get some fuel for the enterprise or something. And they're like going around asking people, Where are the nuclear vessels? The vessels, the nuclear vessels. because he's got this accent.
3: Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear. Wessels. Hello, we are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me where... Ooh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think it's across the bay. In Alameda. That's what I said. Alameda. Alameda.
0: <laughs> Anyways, nuclear aircraft carrier whales—it all kind of fits. So they're everyone's safe. Uh, we're, we, our characters are safe, and with Rat's help, they decide to release all the classified information on Project Destiny on, on Virgil. It's no longer a secret. Okay, I, I figured people were going to ask questions when San Francisco exploded uh, and Rome exploded, but at least we uh, we know what happened here, and that's the end of the core. And all of its fun, science, and nukes, and uh, everything else. We'll get into our rating system uh, at the end of uh, what we thought of that movie overall. But we have another one to cover: we do. Sunshine. Uh, um, and I want you to uh, fly this particular ship into the sun.
1: Call me, call me the captain of the Icarus too. I'm very excited to be doing a plot summary of Sunshine. This film was directed by Danny Boyle. You may know him from Train Spotting, The Beach, Twenty Eight Days Later. Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours. A lot of hits. Academy Award winner. In this case, um, he was accompanied by screenwriter Alex Garland, Ex Machina, Annihilation, Dread. This is a $40 million film uh, that made $32 million <laughs> and in the, the I think, global box office. I'm not sure if it's yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A global box office. So uh, one of the rare films that actually loses money, usually most films have a mo- a modest profit this film did not this film lost eight million dollars but it has a 76 percent fresh rating on rotten tomatoes and it's developed i think a i don't want to say a cult following but it's developed a, i think a loyal a loyal fan base in since since 2000 2007
0: yeah no um, I, I know i know you're the head of the fan club i am yeah
1: yeah vote me uh i i'm self-appointed secretary of, of the uh
3: the committee um <laughs> so, so <laughs> Our sun is dying, mankind faces extinction. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus II. So if you wake up one morning and it's a particularly beautiful day, you'll know we made it.
1: So I think I I mentioned when we were discussing the core that has 53 minutes of exposition. (laughs) This movie has 40 seconds of exposition. I timed it earlier today. Mm -hmm. Just briefly, I'll just read it. I can literally read it to you. Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. Seven years ago, the Icarus Project sent a mission to restart the sun, but that mission was lost before it reached the star. Sixteen months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our payload, a stellar bomb with a mass equivalent to Manhattan Island. Our purpose, to create a star within a star. Eight astronauts strapped to the back of a bomb. My bomb. Welcome to the Icarus 2. Tight. That's a tight intro. That's a tight intro. And the first 40 seconds, he delivers, and then he pauses, and then like 10 seconds, and then delivers that last... That yeah. last line, a bomb. So it's about a minute in total, and then you're on the ship, and you're you don't you don't know about these people's lives, you don't know about what they did before, you know nothing, and <laughs> you are just on the ship with them. And you are hurtling towards the sun. So
0: You you didn't need like 40 minutes of birds starting to get cold and flying south for the winter earlier than they normally would. You didn't need a a business meeting interrupted because they're like, turn the heat up. It's too cold in here. (laughs) No, you didn't need 40 minutes of that.
1: No, this movie is 107 minutes. So it's, it's under two hours. It's a lean film, which I love. Uh, so anyway, uh, so basically it's 20, 2057. The sun is dying. There's basically like a, a new ice age that's happened on Earth. You don't see any of this. You're just told this through the brief exposition and the framing of the mission. The Icarus Project was a project that tried to restart the sun seven years ago, but it failed to reach the sun. They don't know what happened. Again, probably one of the worst names for right. a mission to the sun. L-
0: literally named after a, a character in Greek mythology who flew too close to the sun and was unable to make it and died. And once that happened to fail, they're like, let's let's try it again, Icarus
1: 2. Yeah, let's try it again. Let's not give it a new name like Sun Chaser or <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) or or spark or i don't know something that like (laughs) pelor (laughs) something yeah yeah zippo uh (laughs) yeah they basically have invented and and i'll ask you tim to to jump in here before we dive in too Mm. deep but they basically invented something called the stellar bomb um which is the mass equivalent of manhattan island this includes all the fissile material on earth um and it's been put inside this payload which is not inside the ship really is it is the ship basically and they're going to Fly this ship to the sun with this big payload on the front, jettison it into the star with the hopes of restarting it. So I guess we would say, you you know, if if you have some comments here about sort of the, I guess we're not talking about the feasibility, but I guess I have a question for you to kick this off. Is this the largest bomb ever depicted in popular media?
0: Definitely the largest one that seems to be leaning into like nuclear physics. Uh, uh, There's been big explosions uh, and things like this, but this is, they describe it as all of the earth's, fissile material went into building the first Icarus bomb and then the second one. Uh, right. So there's nothing left. So in, in this world, there are no more, maybe, I, I imagine there's no more nuclear weapons because probably convert that stuff in into the bomb. The movie mostly talks about, I think it's not in the film, but in the script and when the uh, director, the director and the kind of like science team behind it were talking about it, it they mostly referred to uranium fissile material uh, as opposed to plutonium. Uh, uranium is what you can mine. Plutonium is what is a byproduct of burning uranium but they have a lot of it and so this would definitely be the largest because they've all over the earth's fissile material put in together for these two bombs so i, I would say that i mean the manhattan islands it's it's pretty big. I Googled this and Thrillist.com told me that the weight of Manhattan Island is like 125 million tons, you know, make 125 megatons. No, it's it's, it's very, very heavy. They, they, they did say, though, that they talked a lot with some real life scientists on this one in particular, a very famous University of Manchester physicist named Brian Cox, uh, not the super trooper secession star, uh, but another very famous one. And he was part of this kind of research team and he convinced the filmmakers to scale down the size of the bomb from the moon (laughs) to Manhattan (laughs) Island. (laughs) Although in the deleted scene that you showed me, they did get it in there that said, like, it was the weight of the moon or something. Like, they had to get that in there or whatever.
3: This space is dark matter of equal mass to the moon, compressed into the size of a football stadium. Within this space at our command... A single spark will pop into existence and then that spark was split into two and then those will split again and again and again and again and before you know it a reaction that generates more energy than it consumes a big bang on a small scale a glimpse at the dawn of time I think it'll be beautiful I'd like to see it I can live in that
0: but it, yeah, I would say this is this is pretty big, and I think them referencing Manhattan as like the mass size equivalent gotta be right. Like I referenced to the Manhattan Project, the code name for the building, the first original bomb. Maybe I'm it's too obvious to be clever, but like, it's it was fine. It it got across the point, which is this thing is it's the big. size of a football stadium,
1: right. And and later on, they show you the inside of the payload, and it is like it, it looks like a football arena, basically made of of weapons, basically of of, of uh, the payload.
0: You can't describe. I, I've no. There's no. There's no real. It's a fake thing. They they create basically a a, a sci-fi weapon that they say they combine right. dark matter into it as well. So it's uranium fission to ignite dark matter to make an explosion. So it's a nuclear bomb right. that caught. You know, and that's interesting because there's these things called hydrogen bombs or. Fusion bombs, these thermonuclear bombs, much like with the sun, that is essentially burning hot, so hot that it's fusing elements of hydrogen together which also produces an incredible amount of uh, energy uh, when you either fuse atoms together or take them apart. They release more energy than you take to actually split them or fuse them together. So in a thermonuclear bomb, the way that, that means is you take the X-ray or energy and heat from a fission reaction to fuse together elements of hydrogen. And you basically create a secondary stage. That fusion produces the largest portion of an ex- a bomb, which is why you can get to the megaton range in the first place. So all those bombs in core are all thermonuclear two three-stage bombs and they've designed them to be really really large because they'll do a fission to fusion to fission you throw in tritium you throw in more plutonium several cores and you can get that configuration just right so that it has the largest amount of fission uh, or fusion and uses the amount of fissile material as efficiently as possible because most of the fissile material is destroyed in the blast before it has a chance to separate or fuse together. But this configuration of this stellar bomb, I mean, who knows? They look basically like it's one giant cube when you see it later, but inside that is like rows and rows and stacks of cubes. It almost looks like if yeah. you've seen the show Chernobyl, where they show the inside of the reactor and it's a bunch of um, fissile material stacked in pillars little like rods and they're stacked in a square configuration it's like thousands of those together um so that's kind of what imagery i'm getting and then it's a bunch of those blocked together i would say probably if you wanted to close your eyes and visualize it it's a lot like a rubik's cube in terms of what it looks like uh made of dark matter (laughs) so in 50 years or so we figured out dark matter and put it onto a ship covered it with uranium and we're gonna blow it up that's all i can do to help that's basically what it is
1: that's the plan, yeah. And it's—I think the the way they—we'll we'll talk a little more about the, the interior configuration later. But the, I think the ship is designed in a really cool way. Yeah, like, it looks really interesting. So, sort of the inverse of uh, an ICBM in a missile, where you think of like, you know, the big tube with the small payload on top. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the opposite. It's this very narrow ship with like the living quarters and the the garden and all these sort of things that we'll talk about. But then the, the entire front is this massive sunshield, and behind the sunshield is the payload. So most of the ship is the payload. That it's uh it, it it's and it's I guess because of space science, this is
0: this is all okay. This can this can work. The motif, the kind of design aesthetic from real life international space station, uh, you know Skylab's whole kind of what it looks like in real life, right. but then obviously scaled up and it takes also uh the same kind of approach that one of my favorite books and tv series takes which is the expanse uh which is if these ships if you have spaceships that don't actually have to enter the atmosphere they're going to look different than what you think that they look like because they're going to be pretty rudimentary because in space there's no drag it's going to be designed for long-term travel it's going to look kind of ugly Compared to the kind of Star Wars ships that you may, you know, envision that have to go through or, or land in the atmosphere and stuff. So like they have like various tubes and wires and rotating comms towers and all that stuff. It looks cool. I, I will say that design wise, with this movie, the tone it sets, I'm in, and I was on board for 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 this, and they really very quickly draw you in.
1: Yeah, visually, it's, it's awesome. Lots of gold. The spacesuits they use are gold, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yep. The front and all the shields look gold, and with the yellow of the sun and the gold on the ships, it's a very cool look. You don't see a lot of like gold in sci-fi. You see like a lot of silver and like cooler tones. And it's kind of interesting to use like these really hot, hot sort of colors to kind of I think emphasize like the heat, I guess. Yep. But
0: well, speaking of being able to absorb the heat, like let's talk about one of the main reoccurring locations in the movie. The uh, they don't have a, a spray tan booth on board, but they have a like a, a place to, to sit and get a tan.
1: Yeah, they've got the uh, probably the best tanning bed in this old system. <laughs> they have a window on on the front of the shield, so I guess it's it's kind of weird. I think they they take some liberties with the, the layout of the ship because. The payload is supposed to be in the front behind the shields. But then there also is an observation room mm-hmm. where you can look directly at the sun. The computer is also called Icarus. So they one character asks Icarus to show him the sun at 3% brightness. And Icarus says at 3%, you know, you, you'd be blinded, but I can show you 2.6%. This window allows them to view the sun from safety... Um, And there's some awesome shots of the sun kind of filtered through this lens where it's just like this massive ball of fire, which is, I think is an important part of the movie. These rooms come into importance, I think, later in in the movie. So before I talk to that, I guess I should tell you who's in the film. Yeah. Quickly, it's it's a small um, unlike horror where it's a very big cast, there are, by my count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine characters in this movie, plus the computer, Icarus. So uh the characters are the main character is uh Robert Kappa, played by Killian Murphy, brilliant Irish actor. He's the physicist who operates the, the Stellar Bomb. This is not this is Robert Kappa, not Robert Opie Oppenheimer. Uh I think in July we'll probably be doing uh maybe a couple episodes dedicated to that. Oh yeah. So I I fully,
0: <laughs> fully the whole time while watching this movie was like whoa so he's a physicist designing uh, a stellar bomb and he's like kind of in, in love with what the bomb can do and it's like He's also going to play Robert Oppenheimer in an upcoming movie directed by Christopher Nolan. The cast for that movie is also stacked. And I'm just, I'm excited for what that history, what that film is going to be portraying. But uh, yeah, I mean, like you're watching this. I wonder if Nolan was like, oh, well, I've had Murphy in a lot of my movies as like third, fourth built guy. Let's bring him on fully on board. And he already has the acting past performance to portray this kind of physicist nuclear bomb character he probably still has his security clearance so he's in good shape
1: he's he's good at playing a tortured soul uh and i think Mm -hmm. uh, oppenheimer probably falls into that category yeah as does does robert kappa
0: so this character this actor plays some batman villains uh in other movies christopher nolan stuff we have to get
1: scarecrow right
0: so we have to balance it out with some avengers in here so what uh What Avengers uh, actors do we have in here?
1: Well, we have Captain America, Chris Evans, uh, playing James Mace. He's the engineer. He is sort of a, he's sort of the alpha male on the ship, I'd say. I'd say it's, I don't want to call him a jerk. I think he's just like the, not the captain, but he thinks he's like the Mm -hmm. big, the big guy, big man on campus, kind of. Um, and he has that kind of energy. We have Rose Byrne, brilliant actor from Australia. She is the pilot. Uh, played, her, her character's name is Cassie. We have Michelle Yeoh as Corazon, the uh, the biologist. Academy Award winning. Academy Award winner. Who uh, She's responsible for like the gardens. She's really into gardening, which is important on the ship because that's how they create their oxygen. So they have a, a full garden on the ship, which also supplies them with fresh vegetables for cooking, but also oxygen for breathing um cliff curtis as cyril the ship's doctor and psychological officer who is one of the more interesting characters in the movie who well more about him later
0: he loves hanging out in that in that tanning booth he does he
1: loves loves getting a tan uh and we have uh hiroyuki sanada as Kaneda, the ship's captain brilliant japanese actor we have benedict wong as trey he's the navigator and troy garrity as harvey the communications officer and second in command also i think the singular nominee for what would you say you do here uh <laughs> on the ship in terms of your job uh it'll become clear later on that that uh harvey harvey doesn't
0: really have a role to play. who's whose cousin are you uh yeah. are you the next the director's cousin but yeah benedict yeah. wong also another another marvel alum for all of those films but right. uh i like this ship design you see a lot of creature comforts right you got like the food the vegetables that there's legitimately like just like a kitchen. There's gravity. They're not playing around with like space tube food or anything. Um, they're straight up enjoying the food.
1: It's a very humane environment, it seems like. And they seem like kind of very balanced individuals who have their beefs with one another, but it's not like... They're all just kind of normal scientist people on a ship. They're the type of people you would expect to pass a NASA psychological evaluation to be on a mission to save the world. They're not... There are some hotheads, there are some moments of tension, but everyone is mostly like, like there's a deleted scene where there's playing chess. it's like, that's what most of the time is like.
0: This is uh, obviously going to be, as a spoiler, a bit of a contrast to the Icarus one. But also, I think it's really interesting to see this, these comforts and the people acting the way that they are, because the undercurrent that they talk about a lot is most of them don't actually expect this to be a return trip. They're on a suicide mission. There's some small chance that maybe they're going to be able to release the shield, drop the bomb, ride the wave back home. But I don't think most of them actually believe that that's the case. Pretty much their entirety of their mission is just, it doesn't really matter who makes it there. Someone needs to drop the bomb. So they, they, they tend to approach every kind of challenge that way they try to keep their humanity while also recognizing they're doing this for a bigger, a bigger thing. Some, some of them are doing it to save people. Uh, Other ones are maybe doing it to see uh, what the bomb can do and the beauty that it will produce. Nevertheless, uh, it is an interesting contrast of the creature comforts versus, you know, they know where this is going to end.
1: That's kind of the setup. It's like a very, like you're saying, Tim, and like I was saying, it's like, it seems like a a very, well organized and run run ship. After 16 months traveling towards the sun, they sort of they encounter some solar winds older than they think they would, which means they can't send their last communications packets back mm-hmm. via radio or comms towers. So they basically have 24 hours to send their last messages. Kappa, the physicist, takes a lot of time recording his uh his message, uh so long that James Mace, the engineer, can't can't send his message back home, his final message. So they get into a little bit of a fight. This is sort of sets up their the tension between them for the rest of the movie. The captain of Icarus too 2 watches a video message of Icarus's one's one captain, uh, who you might recognize as Mark Strong. The captain's name is Pin, Pin Pinbacker. He talks about a beautiful wave that hits a ship, but it's a very like sort of chaotic, kind of scrambled message. The crew flies by Mercury, so they see Mercury crossing, uh, you know, kind of doing the orbital path across Mm -hmm. the the front of the Sun, or the side of the Sun they're on.
0: And I remember, how how close is Mercury relative to the other planets? My very educated mother just served us nine pizzas. Okay, it's at the beginning. It's the closest planet. Yeah. Yeah. It's the closest planet, yeah.
1: They see that it's beautifully shot, you know, this it looks like just like a a marble kind of moving across this massive beautiful shot in the movie beautiful beautiful shot. This movie does not mess around when it comes to beautiful visuals. It, it's extremely moving. They're all they're all in the yep. observation chamber. They're watching watching Mercury go by, and you feel like you're in there with them. You're like you're witnessing this this kind of remarkable thing that no other human has ever seen, at least humans that are alive. And then we hear some beeping. We hear some beeping. So Mercury's Mercury's iron core has amplified the distress signal from Icarus One. This is discovered by the comms officer. Basically, the only useful thing he's done uh, on the trip, and uh, other than allow them to send their you know Skype videos back home, and basically this this creates a big debate with the crew. Basically, we know that Icarus One is there. It's sending a signal. We can triangulate where it is. It is going to be ten thousand miles or fifteen thousand miles from where we're going to go. Nothing in space terms. We can divert our course. We can go there. The question is, should we go? They have this debate, and they all agree we shouldn't go. To to rescue them if anyone is still alive after seven years, because that would be a massive abdication of our our commitment to our mission, which is to save humanity and the Earth. However, the point is raised by the psychologists on board. If their payload is intact, then we have another opportunity. You know, everything is entirely theoretical whether this this bomb is going to work. So if we have two bombs, we double our chances of restarting the star. They have a bit of a, uh, a bit of a discussion, but then, you know, someone, someone says, we're not a democracy, we're scientists. We'll have a vote. No, 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 we won't.
2: We're not a democracy. We're a collection of astronauts and scientists. So we're gonna make the most informed decision available to us. Made by you by any chance? Made by the person best qualified to understand the complexities of payload delivery.
1: Our physicist. Kappa is the one most qualified to make that call as a n- nuclear physicist. So Kappa is sort of burdened with this, this question of whether or, not, whether or not to divert.
0: I thought it was so interesting that the, the physicist makes this call because I think the terminology he's using, the choices about having extra bombs to complete the mission, reminded me of nuclear war planners.
3: Reliability of projection has dropped below 45%. Remaining projection is not open to useful speculation. That's the problem right there between the boosters and the gravity of the sun, the velocity of the payload will become so great, space and time will become smeared together. Everything will distort, everything will be unquantifiable. You have to come down on one side or the other. I need a decision. It's not a decision, it's a guess. We've mined all Earth's fissile materials for this bomb. There's not gonna be another payload. The one we carry is our last chance. Our last
0: best. Two last hopes are better than one. Basically deciding if you want to destroy a, say, a hardened cover of a silo on the enemy's weapons, uh, and you're trying to make sure you destroy it, you have to calculate, and I used to do these calculations, where you would determine, all right, how accurate are my weapons? 50% of the time they land where you want them to. Alright, uh, so, right, so with well, this size of a, a warhead, I need with this accuracy and what's the the target that I'm trying to hit with it's how durable is it to increase my chance of it being destroyed Uh, to a level that you feel satisfied by the planning you need to fo- follow through with this mission. I'm going to need three warheads on the target because one of them will miss, one of them will maybe fizzle and one will hit. So it's the same kind of calculation, which is the reason why we ended up in during the Cold War with tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, because this is the strategy. There are this number of targets. You know, you can come up with all kinds of targets. You can pick one target. You can pick a million targets in another country. If you pick, you know, a thousand, you're going to need 3000 to hit them. Because you want to make sure you have that number. Uh, You don't just need one per target. You need X number per target based on how accurate your weapons are and how reliable they are to uh, go boom when you want them to. This is the same calculation that feeds into what Robert Kappa is talking about. So I I don't think it's intentional, but that terminology around bombs and things is the same kind of thought that uh, nuclear war planners put into. And this is also the calculations that military people will make in the United States when you talk about, all right, we have currently 1,500 or so nuclear weapons uh, deployable missiles or bombers or submarines, uh, if I want to get to a 1,000 or in 800, it's this calculation that will go into whether or not they, the military will tell you if it's agree- agreeable or not. And then it's up to the civilians to reduce the number of targets or to change the strategy to fit the, the, the process. But anyways, I think it's that hard, cold calculations that happens in real life. The movie at least is um, paralleling that if not intentionally criminal. it.
1: Well we could talk about more of the human elements versus like technocratic elements later but basically Kappa's running the calculations, the computer who's like running the simulations say it's inconclusive. He he just has to yeah. <laughs> he, he, they it's I believe it says uh, you know it would be speculative to go any further. So
0: right uh i think he actually cap- he rolls a d6 uh and it's uh, a 4 through 6 is go uh right. 1 through 3 is not and it, and it lands on 4
1: so I, I think uh the captain comes to the kappa and he you know he's, he he needs a decision and all the science, all the training, all the PhDs, all the <laughs> all the, the diplomas on the wall. Kappa says, well, two bombs is better than
0: one. <laughs> and, that's... And, and for and for a second, I thought I saw General Turgidson from Doctor Strangelove uh, coming through.
1: <laughs> so that's how the decision's made. The nuclear physicist makes it, Kappa makes it. Our protagonists basically. They divert to the Icarus one. They dock successfully. They open the door and everything is covered in dust. Someone makes a joke about, well, dust is 90% human skin. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where the movie kind of makes this pivot to being a, more of a thriller, more of a, a horror movie, more more in line with like alien versus your traditional sci-fi
0: genre film. Good good to note it. This is, for me, a, a pivotal point in the movie. They they
1: go around the ship. The ship has plenty of oxygen. They're not wearing suits. They're wearing kind of COVID-19 masks basically to filter out, <laughs> filter out dust, but they're not wearing uh, much else. Um, they go on the ship. The garden on the ship has been growing unchecked for seven years. The ferns are bursting out of the ceiling. I mean, it's, it, they're, they're really excited because they realize that they can perhaps move the plants or move yeah. the oxygen.
0: Which is really important because we didn't talk about it. There was an accident. There was a fire uh, on there on Icarus 2. Also, the captain died because of a mistake that, um, that Benedict Wong, the navigator, made when he right. was... All, you know, we're not going through everything, but there was the captain's dead, Benedict Wong is on suicide watch, and the oxygen is depleted, and they need more oxygen in order to be able to make that return trip.
1: Right. So uh, the crew is down at this point to—they're on the ship. The ship violently undocks. The Icarus 1 violently undocks from the Icarus 2. And basically, the four guys who were doing sort of, sort of the, the mission on the Icarus 1— have to get back to the the Icarus 2. There's one functioning spacesuit, there are (laughs) four people, and the airlock needs to be opened manually, meaning that one person will need to stay behind. Our psych officer, who has been basically spending the entire movie getting a tan (laughs) in the observation room, who is like slowly deteriorating, who, when the captain was being burned alive by the sun, is on the radio with him, you know, asking, what do you see? What do you see? (laughs) Who is basically like, going crazy, sort of valiantly offers to stay behind. Kappa as the most important, least expendable member of the crew because he's the only one who can operate the payload. This is another sort of shift from the core, where they realize you need the expert to be alive. Mm -hmm, Um,
0: mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Or to simply have one on board would be nice too. (laughs) Or simply have
1: one on board, yeah. Um, uh, So Kappa is given the spacesuit, and these are these kind of gold, very claustrophobic space suits which are like you feel like you can barely move in them
0: they they look like they're they look awesome they're some com- they basically look a little bit like deep sea mining suits but yeah. gold and really like a, a very thin instead of a circle uh see-through it's a very thin slit yeah. um for, for the sun blocking but if
1: you were inside one you would look like you're in like a coffin one of those like torture devices like an iron maiden mm-hmm. like it's like that kind of vibe so he gets the spacesuit, Chris Evans and second in command, who is actually now captain, they strip the, the insulation from the sides of the the inside of the ship, wrap themselves in it because they're going to be propelled. When the airlock is open, they'll be propelled 20 meters, I believe, through space to the other airlock where they'll they'll go in. But since they don't have spacesuits, they'll be subject to I think minus 236 Celsius. So cool. very cold. So they wrap themselves in this insulation. The airlock is blown. They're, sh- they're shot across. Of course, it doesn't go right. Troy Garrity goes spinning off into space. There's this very kind of brutal scene where he they show him, like, freezing incrementally. And then he, in- he exhales and his, you know, body freezes. And then they show his body hitting a comms tower. You know, piece of shatter. And there's, like, frozen blood that kind of sprues mm-hmm. out. Kappa makes it the airlock. He grabs, sort of heroically grabs um, Mace, pulls him in. They pressurize the airlock, open the door. Mace kind of takes his hand out and it's frostbitten. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a pretty like grisly kind of body horror scene. Mm-hmm. Kappa is fine if distressed, but the question remains, you know,
0: how, why,
1: how, how, how did the airlock, how how did the, how did the docking, uh, blow and, 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 and you know, what happened?
0: Because on Icarus 1, we, we learned that like, for some reason, all of the crew were in that sentan observation tower, right. uh, area and they're all crisp. They're burnt to ash, basically. That's where the ashes, you know... Desiccated. Someone opened up the sun uh, observation more than 2.56% or whatever and toasted them.
1: Right. They're back on the ship. They don't have enough enough oxygen. And this becomes a point of discussion. There are, I believe at this point, five members, five crew members on the ship. One of them is played by Benedict, Benedict Wong, who messed up the calculation to begin with, who has been sedated. They surmise that it may have been him who sabotage the docking but kappa points out you know he he's so doped up doped up he sleeps 23 hours a day they have a they have a vote about whether or not they're going to kill him basically so that the, the four remaining crew members have oxygen everyone but rose burns character cassie votes to kill him she refuses to do it mace kind of being the alpha male sociopath that he is i guess <laughs> um that's unfair but we can discuss that in the i guess when we're after done with the recap but he
0: ma- he makes the tough decisions that no one else
1: will he- do that's that's i think how he would frame it yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, he goes to the infirmary to get a scalpel to kill benedict one's character there's a scene here where he opens the scalpel drawer and he doesn't notice that there's two scalpels missing (laughs) so he takes out a scalpel and there's two scalpel slots with two scalpels missing and uh there are these weird like space scalpels that for some reason like oscillate like, there's a button and they.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like a, a sonic toothbrush or something.
1: It's like a sonic toothbrush. It's like, I thought you needed, you'd probably want like a steady hand when you're cutting. Like, I, I don't know what the purpose of these are in a medical sense. If there's any doctors listening, surgeons.
0: Yeah, right into right into the show. Would you right prefer that, the your, that your blade violently uh, oscillated while you were operating?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds like you'd be headed for a super critical, you know, vein puncture, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> he goes to kill uh, Benedict Wong. Ben and has already killed himself. He sees in there, wrists are, wrists are slit he's laying there bleeding out in the, the earth room. And then things start to escalate quickly. A lot of stuff happens in rapid succession. The motherboards that power the ship are, are submerged in this like coolant liquid. These things are pulled out of the coolant so the ship's computers no longer function. Kappa realizes he's in the payload area. He realizes, because Icarus tells him that you don't have enough, enough oxygen to make it to the payload delivery. Kappa.
3: Please clarify. Twelve hours before crew will be unable to perform complex tasks. Fourteen hours before crew will be unable to perform basic tasks. Journey time to delivery point: nineteen Maybe hours. I'm certain we have remaining oxygen to keep four crew alive. Affirmative. Four crew could potentially survive on current Trey reserves. is dead. There are only four crew members. Negative. Affirmative. Ikaris' four crew: Mace, Cassie, Carzon, and me. Five crew. Icarus? Yes? Who's the fifth crew member? Unknown. Where is
1: the fifth crew member? In the observation room. So basically at this point it's established there is an intruder on the ship. Ooh. That's the fifth crew member who is sucking up all the oxygen that they need. He says, where is the crew member? Where is the fifth, you know, fifth person? They say in the observation room. Kappa goes to the observation room and kind of see this shadowy figure naked just like the outline of like kind of a male physique.
0: Yep. You never really see a good look of of the uh the captain. Right. You never really see the look of the the, the monster,
1: the captain. And it's Pinbacker and he's there. He slashes Kelly Murphy's character, slashes Kappa. At this point it just becomes kind of like a monster slasher thriller kind of thing. He's mm-hmm. going uh Kappa manages to kind of pin him behind a an airlock which buys him some time in this while this all is happening, um, Chris Evans' character, uh, Mace, is trying to lower the mainframes back into the coolant so that he can activate the, 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 the computer system so they can function again. I will also say that, uh, number one, they, they, I think they do a really good job in this movie of, like, there's, like, differences in temperature. Like, if there's the heat of the sun, and then there's, like, yep. this super cool liquid. Also, Chris Evans manages to do this. He manages to get these things back in, but I think he dies, like, the most horrific death of the film and doing so like someone is burnt by the sun. some people are stabbed. People like slit their throats. People are frozen in the ether of space, but like he like slowly freezes to death. He slowly freezes to death from the bottom half up in a vat of like anti or or super freeze. I don't know. I don't even know what it is. It's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's like very graphic and, and very grim.
0: Which is ironic because in addition to playing Captain America, he also played the human torch. In the right. Fantastic Four movie, so yeah, it's a weird way for the Fantastic, uh, you know, Human Torch to go um, yeah. to freeze, but yeah, it's it's pretty rough. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, people getting stabbed. Uh, Corazon gets stabbed in the back by by Pinbacker right after she realizes that one of the plants survived the fire, and she was so excited about that, and then she gets stabbed and uh, gets kind of left uh, positioned in a way that looks like she's worshiping the the plant by Pinbacker. Yeah. Uh, you know we're, we're almost near the end of of the movie but like do we get a sense like what's your perspective why is why is pinbacker doing this because he killed he went insane i guess arguably he killed his crew on icarus one he left icarus one right where it needed to be to if there was ever going to be another mission to hopefully like draw them in and he was waiting there for seven years as he says later in the film talking to god the sun
2: for seven years i stole God, he told me to take us all to
0: heaven. What is his motive? Why is he doing what he's doing? He draws seemingly like from potentially like what is the I forget the character's name from Apocalypse Now by Marlon Brando. Kurtz. Yeah, the Kurtz. There's clearly a lot of that. He looks like him in a way. Yeah. Uh, with his skin burnt instead of covered in you know mud and stuff. But what what like what do you think of? what he's trying to get across. It is
1: a spiritual film in a lot of ways, and it, it it sort of brings like the existence of God or a God or some kind of higher power into question, not directly, but I think indirectly. Pinbacker and the, um, sorry, we're, I'm not doing, and Searle and, and uh, played by Cliff Curtis are sort of, on Icarus 2, it's Cliff Curtis, on Icarus 1, it's Pinbacker. It's like they are entranced, intoxicated, somehow obsessed with the sun the closer they get the more they want to be exposed to it and i think Mm -hmm. they see it as like filling a god role in their lives and i think you know that seems absurd obviously like from our perspective but i mean historically like the sun was a god right i mean this is like a think the thing that's like a constant in human civilization for millennia before the intervention of science and rah 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 right exactly rah 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 but I think it's particularly potent in the context of the film when you are in a you're in a not a post-apocalyptic world, but you're in an, in a world that's experiencing the beginning of an apocalypse or or a beginning of a the extinction of life. It's like maybe people would adopt these ideas or or be influenced that way. They're literally passengers on things that are like the pinnacle of man-made achievement, the pinnacle of science and technology. They're approaching something which is like perhaps the pinnacle of nature's power like Mm -hmm. at least in the sense that we know it so they're in awe of it and maybe awe can lead to infatuation and infatuation can lead to fanaticism and fanaticism can lead to murder i guess i don't know there i mean as a former kind of terrorism guy uh not a practitioner of that but a practitioner of the policies surrounding it maybe they're radicalized by the sun i don't know that's that's sort of my take on it i guess like this this extreme power that feel welcomed by and warmed by and a part of and embraced by they become acolytes of and uh, mm-hmm. worshipers and servants and
0: I I, I don't know it really it really speaks to their soul yeah um, sols yeah no I, I think that makes that makes a lot of makes a lot of sense and it also interesting parallels between our psych person Cyril and and Pinbacker they both kind of approach it differently you know they're both infatuated with it but one of them is fairly peaceful about it and the other one is like hey oh, yeah, i'm going to murder the whole of humanity about it like right. they have different different things uh, that they take away from that same common attraction
1: right and that's i think that's actually a fairly common like rad- radicalization path like some people you know become radicalized but perhaps they're not violent and some people become radicalized and they become violent i mean this is you know we talk about this a lot in the the terrorism space between people who are radical in like a religious sense but non-violent and then some people are radical in a religious sense and violent i mean this is a pretty pretty common territory so i don't think the film is intending to do that but Mm -hmm. but maybe we can we can put that lens on it if it's if it works for us at this point basically it's kind of reality Storts sorts to like distort. Kappa makes it to the payload. Roseburn is dead, as we mentioned. Everyone is dead with Kappa and the villain basically, mm-hmm. the, the uh Captain the Vicarous one pinbacker. So they're in the payload area. It's like a massive football arena cube thing. It's they really do a good job of making it almost impossible to visualize and understand and comprehend. Right. I mean it's that it's that big. It's not like it's one room. It it seems like it's a room with stairs that go down, and then there's like another football field. It's it is huge. And they do a great job of make it just seem so, 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 so big.
0: A small thing, and it's just not really that important, but I kept thinking when they were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to run out of oxygen, it's like, well, just don't put all of your uh, air in that giant stadium room because they're walking around <laughs> there with no, <laughs> yeah, with no masks.
1: It's like, don't get
0: the air out of there, man. Like, you have an entire stadium filled of air in this yeah. gigantic, maybe the air is, I don't know, like dark matter yeah. radiation or whatever, but like, you know, don't, 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 don't oxidize that, man. Just... Use that air, but whatever, it's a small thing.
1: No, that's, that's, that's a good point. But we, we've it's been probably. talking
0: about too much cool stuff that's not about nukes and not about bombs, so let's right. wrap up here with uh, the bomb bit. What do you see?
1: You know, they asked Kappa earlier in the film, like, what is it going to be like? And he says, what is the explosion going to be like, the detonation? He, thinks, he says, I think it's going to be beautiful.
0: He wants to touch it.
1: He wants to touch it, and... When all the dust settles, when everyone is, when it's just him alone with his bomb, you and you see they they kind of tease this earlier in the film. It's like one spark leads to two sparks, leads to three, leads to four sparks, leads to eight sparks. You know, mm-hmm. this exponential, um, a supercritical reaction, supercritical reaction happening. It goes up. This is this is sort of intercut with the payload itself flying into the sun, so you see the exterior shot then in the interior shot of Kappa, the flame wall is coming towards him and you think it's going to vaporize him. You think it's going to be like a grisly scene where, you know, it's like his body being melted, but it's him. And he's just like bathed in the flame, bathed in the bomb. Mm-hmm. And he's smiling. The, the reaction is happening. And he, he is in the middle of it as it's flying towards the center of the sun. And he is bathed in his bomb. He is one with his bomb. And <laughs> then I don't know if they showed on screen, but eight minutes later, Uh, They cut to the planet Earth, the only time you see the Earth in the film, and you see uh, two children playing in the snow and a woman watching a video from Kappa where he says, okay sis if it's a particularly beautiful day you know you'll know we've succeeded and uh she puts down her phone she calls her kids over and you see the this this arctic tundra landscape you think you're in alaska or i don't know Mm -hmm. Wisconsin or siberia or something and uh
0: siberia yeah you're pretty close you see
1: you see the sun rising it's the sydney opera house so they they kind of do this cute thing where they're like okay this is how bad it was you know literally like Sydney is a tundra and, but now the sun is bright and it's a good, it's a good day. So, so they've succeeded and that's, uh, everyone dies, um, on the ship, <laughs> but maybe the people on earth survived. Yeah. We actually don't know. I mean, all we all, we don't know if they succeed. We know it was a nice day.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny to me because one of the thoughts I had at the end of the movie, once it was realized that it was in Australia, I kind of almost thought it was a bit like a reverse version of On the Beach, that classic movie, classic book, uh, where a lot of the characters are essentially waiting at the end of a nuclear war, global nuclear war that took place. The people in Australia are waiting as the last country that will receive fallout a big cloud of radioactive fallout that's basically going to kill everybody and they're all dealing with that reality of their life uh counting down the minutes this is kind of like a reverse version of that instead of a nuclear war nuclear device that is destroying the earth and people in australia are waiting on the beach for it to land it's them in the sydney area uh waiting for the warm sun and a nuclear stellar bomb saving the day so uh, kind of a fun little reverse there not sure it's intentional but that's how my brain works so that was great uh so we covered two movies in about two hours uh we've got some nuclear content to cover before we get into our non-nuclear discussion stuff because i think we've got a lot of fun stuff to, to wrap up here so i've got those two questions from earlier uh that i think we should kind of cover a little bit uh knowing that we went long here but you know these are fun movies to talk about and it's a double. It's a double episode. It's know? a double whammy. It's your first episode. We're going to do great. And also, I haven't did a podcast in three months, so people uh, deserve more content. How did each movie show off the savior power of the bomb? Because both of these take nuclear weapons as this kind of central, positive force in order to be able to save the world. You know, the core... I, my, from my perspective really dives into this theme head on uh, with that kind of bit of dialogue we talked about earlier uh with luck irony will break for the good guys for once the world's biggest weapons of mass destruction will save the world uh sunshine really doesn't get into that particular aspect except you know you know the world is in a scenario you know has no nuclear weapons left so that's probably a positive development at least unless of course the Russians hit one of those bombs that you said they wouldn't know right. if they went missing you know it it is an interesting item here about kind of the the way these two nuclear films or uh, films with nuclear plots uh, kind of go into that perspective as someone as yourself who's into international security but nuclear weapons aren't uh the main thing that you kind of studied uh, what was your take from that is it does it come across to you that like an armageddon situation where like yeah these are dangerous but these are going to save the day
1: well i'll tell you what they do independently i think the core is more shockingly the core is like more aware and actively addresses that basically through the one line the irony line mm-hmm. um and I think that's because these are very different movies in terms of like the core is like a I don't want to call it a B movie, but it's like a action flick, uh a disaster flick, definitely more in line with like, you know, Armageddon, Deep Impact, Meteor, um, these kind of movies that we've we've talked about before and you talked about in the pod. I feel like they need to put that line in there because kind of going just for your generic general audience and they, right. they kind right. of have to put that in there sunshine is kind of like an art house picture in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a 40 million dollar movie like don't get me wrong it's not a cheap film it's a, it's a big movie um or it was a big movie i almost feel like they feel like they didn't have to do that because the people like the audience for that film is not the same as the core audience um if we're talking about like your, your blog, yeah yeah that yeah, makes perfect sense a release you know the maybe the people watching the the sunshine or like you know yeah we know that this is these things are not good it's also different in the way they're framing it in a lot of ways because in the core they're like you said they're they're loading 200 megaton which don't exist 200 megaton <laughs> uh weapons onto this train drill that they've made in sunshine it's not like i mean they call it a bomb but it's not like they're taking it's a new thing. It's like a new yeah. piece of technology that they've arrayed from all the fissile material on Earth. It's it's not like they've taken, you know, a bunch of, of warheads and strapped them to the front of the spaceship. They've kind of created a more elegant thing, I guess, which has one purpose. Like, it's a purpose specifically designed piece of, piece of equipment, piece of technology. So I guess, but Sunshine doesn't really, I mean, it, it is, I think, but I think both these films drive at this thing in our psyche, which I was thinking about earlier today, which is like, I think we still think of these weapons even post cold war and like we're not kids of the cold war we're obviously like millennial people who grew up in a lar- largely a world without this framing
0: like our every every day. Speak speak for yourself. I have uh, uh think about it every single darn day, but I <laughs> well, that's your, that's your I job agree job. because <laughs> I'm because I'm weird. I completely agree with you though. I'm kidding.
1: But I, th- I think we view these weapons as like the peak technological achievement of humanity. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Even though, like, despite how destructive they are, despite how very readily they could kill everyone on Earth, we still think they're, like, pretty impressive. I think our fiction reflects that because we want, I think we we use our fiction to find an outlet for that view, for that belief, because reality does not reflect that belief. So we have to use our fiction to reflect that for us. Maybe that's a bit too high. No, I, I think that's cool.
0: <laughs> I think that's really cool. Another another perspective on it. And I don't, you know, for me, I'm just kind of thinking through different thoughts that like kind of similar what you're doing. Another angle that I was thinking with this is there's some small element of man bites dog situation. Like it's abnormal that these weapons are positive and helping us uh, right. from a moviegoer from the core. It's like, oh. That's kind of interesting. You're right. These things, which I've been known to be dangerous and and be you know lethal, uh, duck and cover drills, um, hide because your phone accidentally tells you that there's an incoming missile into Hawaii. So hide. Uh, so like the worry. Now they're on our side. It's like basically that Godzilla versus right. um, anybody. It's like well now he's on yeah. my side, and it's that there's that element of, of of weirdness that kind of tweaks this a little bit and, and gives you that sense of this is kind of a fun different action take on it. Um, but I also do think the movies could conceivably not make it about nuclear weapons at all. Because in the core, they could have just invented some other kind of thing. It didn't have to be a nuclear weapon that would restart the Earth's core spinning. It could have been something else. You know, they went with big, explosive, this is the most powerful punch we can throw kind of approach. But they also just were like, oh yeah, um, there's a train. It's made of a magic metal. Also, it can have a magic laser in the front of it. And all of these other components of like special... Radios that can reach from the core to other certain Destiny uh Project Destiny, which can cause earthquakes around the world and not be detected. They make up a bunch of essentially science stuff, anyways, and could have simply invented the uh, unobtainium bomb, and it would have been some other kind of thing. But they grounded it in something people know, and I think Sunshine is really fascinating to me because. They kind of did it, even though it's not in your face all the time. Murphy's uh, not going around. Kappa's not going around saying, this is like a, a fission bomb uh, with, on Earth. And, but they say it's they take all the fissile material, build a nuclear weapon, but they add dark matter to it. It's just funny to me that they didn't just create something whole cloth, something new. They, they, they took some, not fake science, but not any science that we understand today about how to harness and produce that much dark matter. But they took that tied into something that we did know uh, and made a different thing. And it was funny that they went that direction versus just entirely creating something um, out of whole cloth. And I I find that interesting, that they could have gone one way or the other, but still feel the need, even in this very interesting science of the future kind of direction, they still had to ground it.
1: Maybe that's a strength of the movies and also a flaw. Like, as a movie-going audience, people who watch these things, we want a little bit of grit and reality in... The solution, right? We don't want it to be like a a deus machina thing where there's like a magical thing that just like fits. Like, to your point, like I could think of, because I was thinking today, like when you brought this up in the show notes, spoiler alert for the audience, this is not all extemporaneous. um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I thought it was uh, before I became a host. No, uh, when you brought that up in the show notes today... It's
0: all AI written these days.
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) No one knows what's... Actually, Icarus Icarus wrote this, the uh, computer from... uh, I'm such a but she forgot to d- redirect the shields um no i was thinking that like what could be in sunshine if there weren't if there if it wasn't a, a you know a warhead or whatever a payload what could it be and i was thinking well maybe they could it could be like we isolated we isolated like a single particle from the big bang and we can like, because we have that particle, we can use that to like recreate. I, I don't know,
0: Higgs boson or whatever, right? Yeah, like, like,
1: yeah, yeah, right, right. There act- and there actually is the science behind that, right? Like, you know, that's you could like make some stuff up that would kind of be sciencey enough to sound good.
0: We have to sprinkle this magic dust on the sun, and it will spice it up a bit.
1: Yeah, but like to go back to your point, and to go back to your original point, like why? I think it's because we love these things. We're hmm. impressed by them. We're intimidated by them. We're we're in all of them. And we want to see them portrayed on film I and mean, we, we want to see what we perceive is to be like a brilliant level of human achievement and engineering, like doing good things versus bad things.
0: That's the, I mean, it's funny. That's the weird, ironic kind of long take in Dr. Strangelove's title, which is Dr. Strangelove colon uh, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. I mean, Kappa fully is, you know, not worrying anymore about uh, surviving and he's loving his stellar bomb. Yeah. But now I come to the point of like, all right, if you're going to ground this thing in reality, all right, well, in the reality, will these weapons do anything to solve these problems? Like you're bringing this solution to this problem that you've created, you know, you're the screenwriters for it. Will these actually work? So with the core, uh, you know, on on a study that I I found uh, on this website called Intuitor, you know, looks at the movie's physics of the core and says, you know, look, the solid iron inner core of the Earth has a rotational kinetic energy equivalent to about 350, 200 megaton bombs, consistently always happening. That's the amount of energy that this thing is having when it rotates. The liquid metal, primarily iron, outer core surrounding the inner core has a normal rotational kinetic equivalent to roughly 32,000. 200 megaton bombs they bring five assuming that the inner core has to be restarted and that all of the bomb's energy can be converted to rotational energy they would need at least 335 of those bombs more than they already brought on the ship so it's basically a a speck in the wind uh trying to stop a hurricane from approaching we're gonna need a bigger boat Uh, yeah and they tried to make a bigger (laughs) bomb by putting plutonium next to another one Uh, it also does not make sense from this other perspective, which I didn't pick up until I had a weird random thought in the middle of a work meeting today. And that's like, sorry, I have to write this down. If a bomb explodes. And this is a again tying back to how nuclear weapons, um, when you're a warfighter and planner and whatever and you're trying to figure out where to put your bomb exploding, they explode in a circle. Because it's a bomb that's not shaped to explode in a certain direction. It's not a laser. Uh it blows up in a circle. It kind of just explodes from its center. If you put a bomb like that inside the Earth's core it doesn't push anything in one direction or another because it's literally surrounded by the core. So how do you force the core to spin in one direction when basically the force that you're applying to it is everywhere, extending from the point of the explosion taking place? And yeah, they that was their original plan, and eventually they daisy-chain the bombs, but still... They're, none of those things are going in a, a direction. They're, it's equal direction the other way, too. Firmly does not make any sense about what they're trying to do with this.
1: They try to explain it through the pond ripples thing, like... No. But it's, like, it's but, but, like, you know, it's like ripples in a pond, where the ripples reinforce each other if you, like, throw a bunch of small stones in versus one big stone.
0: I'm like, yeah, but when I throw a bunch of
1: stones in the pond, I don't create a
0: whirlpool. Right. Like, exactly. Like... <laughs> like you know, it's not just like this, the the Earth's core isn't sleepy, and we need to shake it awake. Like we're trying to get it spinning in a direct whatever, whatever. Um, and then you know, you you look at the you know, you try to approach a little bit of the the sun, <laughs> and the amount of energy you would need to restart the sun is also pretty pretty wild. Uh, when you're trying to calculate those kinds of stuff, essentially the sun for scaling purposes. Literally has flares that fly out from it that are 10 times the size of Earth. And you start to factor in all of the fissile material on Earth. You start to get the sense of the scale. And also, fissile material is like one less than 1% of all of the material on Earth is anywhere. It's way lower than that, even. The amount of uranium that you could mine off of the Earth. It's not like this rock or iron. Essentially, the amount of nuclear bombs that you would have to need to basically have any sort of impact on that is truly, truly astronomical. Um, no pun intended. Yeah, 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 yeah. The sun has the equivalent of like energy or force of essentially 4 billion hydrogen bombs going off every single second. And if you want a new heat source to restart the fusion reaction that would not, you know, in the center of the Earth, the amount would have to be crazy. Now, the movie says, you know, Brian Cox, who is the, uh, we mentioned earlier, the physicist who was helping with this, posits this idea that there's this thing called a cue ball, which is like a highly dense packed, uh... Highly energetic object that may have been around during the original Big Bang has gotten caught in the sun's gravitational and is stopping the reactions from happening. I guess the idea in the movie is is that it goes to that cue ball and explodes it and disrupts it, disperses it, so that no longer is there something drawing and stopping the fusion reaction of the sun. I don't think that comes across super super great. In the movie, it seems like it's more like the sun's slowing down. They want to reignite it. Um, it, Look, either way, the amount of fissile material that we have on Earth would have to be really supplemented by this dark matter stuff. So it really is pointless to talk about from the perspective of the science behind it. Other than just to say it'd have to be super magic to have any sort of impact on the intensity uh, relative to make any sort of difference of what the sun is producing on a regular basis.
1: I mean, imagine you had a really big bonfire that was kind of burning down. Then you like flicked a mash into it. <laughs>
0: that's kind yeah. of like,
1: that's kind of like the, how I think it would actually go.
0: hundred percent. And then also the movie ignores the fact that there's like, if you look, if you think about when a star dies, it gets hotter before it gets colder. It gets, it burns hotter and then gets colder. It doesn't just like slowly get cold. But then of course, then you don't have a movie, right? It's fine. I think it's not, this is not important to the, what the movie is trying to do oddly enough the b movie is trying to ground stuff more than the high concept picture but i think you nailed it like they are different audiences or different attempts for the film they're coming in people are coming in with different expectations and they're trying to accomplish different things
1: yeah i think so i think that's 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 kind of the key here they're also three years apart or four years apart but they feel like they're from vastly different eras of right. cinema like 2003 the core feels like one of those movies from twenty years ago that was so much yep a disaster driven there's a love interest hidden in there. There's like
0: it feels like the movie Meteor, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but let's add that to your list. It's a Sean I Connery. I actually haven't seen Meteor. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a Sean Connery like nuke nuke meteors kind of stuff, but it feels very similar to it.
1: It feels like a nineteen ninety six. It feels like Independence Day. It feels right. like Armageddon. It feels like Twister almost like kind of the just your classic kind of disaster picture. Whereas Sunshine, I like. Sunshine feels like it was like twenty years too early. Yeah, I mean that that movie, or that movie feels like it come out today, and with some minor tweaks, I think it would be like really good and re- really well appreciated amongst an audience today. But uh, maybe maybe a few a few choices made differently, but I think that that was a film a little bit ahead of its time but
0: there's other stuff i was going to talk about here where there's some interesting uses of nuclear weapons in the history uh, of us in the atomic age where oh yeah let me back
1: let me back my segue back up
0: yeah from the
1: parking lot into the
0: just super quick uh (laughs) peaceful nuclear blast which is a funny name uh in in itself but uh there were these science experiments and actual application of nuclear weapons in construction projects and in stopping various kinds of disaster situations at the soviet Union did. Uh, So one example is in September 1966, a 30 kiloton nuclear device so very very small compared to like a 200 uh, megaton bomb but you know larger than the bombs that were dropped on uh, japan this was used by the soviet union to extinguish a fire uh, that was out of control for three years at a natural gas field in central asia they dropped this explosive device uh essentially about 1500 meters down so not at the earth's core but you know deep enough Loaded it and the idea there is that it would basically both kind of suck away any sort of oxygen that was fueling or any sort of source of fuel but also cause collapses from the earth's uh, source of that fuel uh, and essentially collapse all those tunnels and it worked they did it um you know twice in 1972 they specially designed the charge to its best ability to focus on one location and not just create a big hole like you would if you were testing a nuclear bomb that would create a a hole that then the earth above it would fall down and that's when you get those kind of crater looking subsidence craters. But anyways, I'll, I'll link to some stories uh, from the the New York Times about it. So we don't have to get into it too much. We talked about it in previous episodes, but there is a lot of application of trying to use nuclear weapons in the past for these quote unquote peaceful projects. The uh, U.S. had a, a whole version of this stuff called the Plowshares Program um in various uh nuclear construction project testing let's move from the nuke discussions to our parking lot uh which is where we would talk about non-nuclear things it's kind of reminiscent of what you and i did last thursday where we went to a movie and talked about it a little bit in the parking lot before we went our separate ways it's what i used to do a lot when i was a kid yeah so first how important is science accuracy in these kinds of movies we alluded to this earlier Dustin Hoffman man did not like the core. he became the face of a lobby group uh called the Science and Entertainments Exchange, where the whole point of this program was to work with the National Academy of Sciences and promote films that they thought respected scientific principles like Jurassic Park, which don't get me wrong into that like also is pretty crazy when it comes to DNA, but they thought it was good, yeah, and then debunk movies like the core, uh which Dustin thinks quote unquote you can make entertaining movies which also get a message across about uh, without slowing down the action, a source said. He hated these big blockbusters. Why can't we do it better? And then they quoted a poll of hundreds of scientists who were asked what was the worst sci-fi movie with science in it, and they said the core was at the top of the list.
1: Yeah, I can see that being true. I'll I'll push back a little bit, and I'll just say that, like, the core does explain to people that there is a core to the Earth, (laughs) (laughs) and... (laughs) That it rotates and that helps with the electromagnetic, or creates the electromagnetic magnetic field. Now, as you mentioned, they do get that wrong um, in terms of the effects of not having one, but it does correctly explain that there is one <laughs> <laughs> and that the that the core of the earth has, has something to do with it. So, I think that's you know that's in the plus column. There is
0: a lot in the minus column for the film. It's like that the the more you know thing where uh you have that star fly across the sky uh right but instead of a star it's it's like a piece of space junk so it's it's visually the same but you know not exactly the same uh bright idea i would say to dustin hoffman don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good (laughs) fair enough um i wish we can i wish we'll get him on as a guest sometime
1: do we try to get him on uh we tried to get him on this one I think but he he was uh he was busy I
0: think with this one Danny Boyle tried uh the director of of Sunshine to ground his crew a little bit in more of science you know he did try to reach out to Brian Cox that physicist and say make this idea work what would it What would it take to make the sun go cold? Uh, And they tried their best with this cue ball space matter theory, trying to do all that kind of stuff. Danny Boyle brought his crew onto a nuclear submarine and give them a sense of what life was like there in terms of the isolation and dealing with these kinds of potential world ending uh, scenarios. Uh, I actually kind of thought it was interesting that they were the ones on Sunshine that got taken to a nuclear submarine because... Throughout the entirety of the core, all I was thinking was, this is like a submarine movie, weirdly enough. They're not in water, yeah. but the way that the, the ship works, the way that the, the train works. And, and B- Danny Boyle did say, like, well, the movie, like, the science isn't perfect. The way he characterized it is, uh, it's a case of science possible, not science impossible. So they're trying to, to walk that line. Yeah. UCLA physicist Alexander Kushenko was asked uh, essentially if their sun was dying how would you restart it which they you know they thought will happen in five billion years he's like I don't know uh, I don't really have any good ideas but nuclear bombs don't seem to be like a feasible option but of course it's not just a nuclear bomb it's a stellar bomb right um yeah very very different but yeah and even Brian Cox was saying like yeah you know the movie it's science is a little shortcoming but like what does he say? He says it shouldn't detract from the ability of the movie to raise vital questions about the universe's confounding and dangerous nature. Quote, what is certainly true is that our position on the fragile Earth is far from secure. We live in a violent universe that we certainly do not fully understand, which uh, I also think, you know, end quote here, does me, uh, this is not how very far from people talk about nuclear weapons in human life. So fair enough.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it is an interesting corollary to the discussion about, about the existence and creation of, of nuclear weapons. I think that I was thinking today, whether the, the, the sunshine is, is, you know, when we think about sort of the greatest existential threat to everyone, which is like global climate change and things like that. And sunshine is, takes a different, different approach on that. Should mm-hmm. I think. Um, but uh, I think it's relevant given, like, you know, the, this movie just came out this or last week, like, how to blow up a pipeline. There are like more radical films that are coming out about sort of like how to approach climate change and to to understand it. And I think like a younger generation is like going to be more engaged on those sort of movies. And this movie is like, well, no, the the opposite's happening actually. So I don't think that I don't think the film is doing that deliberately. Like, I don't. This is not a film making a political point. I don't right. think at all. But it is interesting to like view it in in a 2023 context, mostly through the the lens of like how do we view our ability to use technology to solve problems right Um, are we truly like technocrats as like as in in like western society like do we think we have the power to solve these issues because i think our fiction like like i was saying earlier like our 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 fiction reflects our ambitions sometimes how we want to see ourselves and what our technology can do so i think it's actually interesting that like we even the basis for the question to begin with, and I think Brian Cox guessed at that. Like he's like, I have no idea how this would be solved because yeah. there really isn't a solution. This would be there. There is there is no solution to it. Your star died. You you, you just...
0: would you would solve it the way that uh, Josh Key does, which is you go to the bar and sit with your French friend and reminisce.
1: That's the that's the most realistic scene in, in either of these films.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the core, you know, at its core, is an action movie it's it's trying to uh present a fun environment but still trying to, you know, touch on some of these kind of science stuff. But it even the message that it kinda it has it kind of sneakily is humans created this problem. We think we can solve it. I think the weird thing to me is someone who comes with that weird slant of like nuclear weapons are bad and yeah, I guess they are the most destructive thing. So if you have to throw something at an asteroid, sure seems like not the reason to invent them, but if you have them maybe you keep one or two. But in this movie it's like humans created this problem problem. The military did it. Maybe they slightly regret it, but eh, really not, not much. They The weird nature of mutually assured destruction and the the drive to have the bigger bomb t- or having a bomb to batch someone else ultimately resulted in them testing a device, Project Destiny, that caused the Earth to almost be destroyed. Well, what did we do? Where do we turn to for help? I mean, the next worst thing that has threatened yeah. humanity. But now this one works. So, I don't know. It doesn't... I'm sure it's not their intention, but as someone like me watching that movie, again, with my political... And, and military leanings here, it's very much like, oh, yeah, thank you for recognizing that sometimes things can go wrong, but now you're just using this other solution um that also is pretty bad too uh, and justifies its existence. And in Sunshine at least they um don't try to dig into that too much uh and they kind of invent their own thing, but they are playing with what can be the scenarios where humanity is destroyed. We'll do our best. And I think what you said earlier is very, very, very relevant here. This is the pinnacle of humanity's scientific excellence. It's literally when you have things these days, you either call something a moonshot when you're trying to advance technology quickly, a cancer moonshot. We need a moonshot for this. Or we call it a Manhattan Project, a Manhattan Project for this. Because those are those moments where we recognize, we tried, we accomplished something we succeeded. At Sunshine, they create a Manhattan-sized weapon, drawing on imagery of this moment you talked about earlier of, like, a cool development in human history, but to try to solve stuff through science. And I, there's that deleted scene that you sent me where Pinbacker and Kappa are talking, and it's like, do you not know God? Pinbacker says, and what does Kappa say? Like, I don't believe in God. I'm atheist. An atheist yeah but i made this thing and boom yeah last last question i have here in our parking lot before we need to wrap this up because i'm looking at how i'm gonna have to edit this all thing together but i apologize it's going a tough edit i
1: apologize no, no it's
0: fine i haven't edited in a while so i'm gonna get my my juices going again uh this is punishment for me and penance for how long we've taken to have another episode come out the last question but i do want to talk about this is did you james enjoy the thriller horror third act story in sunshine and relatedly the military cover-up story of the core, both of the kind of, like, B-ish plots of these movies.
1: Yeah, I'm going to, uh... Well, first, in the core, I think that it's... It's okay, again, I think, regard... Well, it's not okay, it's bad. But, like, what we were talking about earlier, like, did they have some kind of consultant in the writer's room who was perhaps advising them on how these things work? Maybe they had someone like you who they ignored, uh, who the studio put in there and They just said, sit in the corner, consultant boy. And <laughs> you'll you'll be summoned if you're needed. Yeah. Uh, and that never happened. There is a. I think it's particularly interesting this week with all these uh, these leaks from the the Air Force Air Force Base in Massachusetts. There is a very lax <laughs> control on classified information.
0: In this, I in mean, Zeminski just brings it home and puts right. it next to his uh, his cigarette humidor. Their solution in the movie seems to be: well, we'll just
1: scrub the internet. And that's that's sort of it. No one who's working on this project seems to be like quarantined or yep. or sequestered or anything like that. Everyone is. There's not
0: right. a Manhattan project of which also equals the secrecy of the bomb project. No,
1: they they seem like they're free to go. I would also like to acknowledge the very French thing in this film, where they drink a bottle of champagne before they,
3: before yep. they
1: go. <laughs> I mean, great. There, there's there's like six of them, and it's probably not that much champagne. None of them are drunk, but it's still just like you know, it's <laughs> yeah. Let's drink this bottle of champagne before we get on this. Yeah, it, it's,
0: exactly. It's like before uh, they get an, a space shuttle in like Apollo 13, like we're going to light this candle. But before we do, let's go the candles lit because let's open mm-hmm. up the bottle of champagne. It's a nice romantic moment. Yeah
1: it's it's a nice moment i like it on screen i like the, you know the french guys like oh i could not resist and he just like pulls out, a, pulls out a bottle of champagne out of his it, would,
0: it just would have been great too if like keys came out it's like i can't resist either the american just pulls out a gun and starts firing in the air <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but i think yeah it, it is pretty weak and i think they they try to like round off the very morally dubious like scrubbing the internet question at the end where they like release everything to the public mm-hmm. i think that's kind of like a a weird way to do that because you're kind of saying like, we need to keep all this information for everybody, but then like, we're, we're equipped to make the, you know, we're equipped to make the decision about when people have this stuff. And it's like, I don't wanna call it like a libertarian take but like we know best, the scientists know best, the experts know best. It, it's sort of a strange thing. The whole the whole thing keeping it a secret from the public is like a weird thing too, because it's like very incremental and it's 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 happening very slowly. And like you could just tell people, it just seems like a strange thing that they would keep covert. It's a weird plot beat in the movie. And I think like there's plenty of disaster movies where people know what's going on and there's like some panic and
0: yeah, you can't wave it. You mean like Armageddon? Basically, you think about the time place uh t- the time period of the movie. So two thousand three, the Iraq War was happening, but the, there's no way they could have. T- That much to it at that particular period because the movie came out in 2003. Um, you know, but it's post nine eleven. There's Patriot Act stuff going on. A sense that the military is a place you could start to poke fun of for a while after though two thousand and three, you really couldn't. And I kind of i surprised after 9-11, being able to go after the military and, and refer to them basically as uh, anything less than heroic is a bit of a surprise to me. Even in a B, you know, a B movie, like the military does not come across well in the core. It comes across as people who made a mistake. There's no military official on the ship.
1: Well, it's air. she's she's I
0: guess she's air force. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I yeah. associate her with as more with the space program, but you're right. That is, uh... Early swike is, is technically Air Force. I guess she's detailed to NASA, but she's... We, we've, uh, we've trashed, uh, the core enough. What about Sunshine? Uh, because to me, the final act of Sunshine is where it started to lose me. What about you? With this kind of horror element that gets introduced?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely a shock the first time you see it. I think upon a rewatch today, I was, like, noticing things that made it a bit more satisfying. Like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's late in the film, but I talked about it earlier when like you see that the scalpels are missing from the droid. You're like, "Okay, this is something's going to happen when you you see that first video of the captain. You kind of focus on that a bit more. I think the third act of this film really benefits from a rewatch. If you're going into this clean, like if you were one of the 14 people who saw this in a theater in 2003, (laughs) um, (laughs) you'd probably be a little thrown off. But like. Now that I've watched it the fourth or fifth time, I kind of expect those moments. And I'm kind of looking for little bits that help me understand that. With that said, I think it is, it's not great. But I've racked my brain today trying to think of like something else they could have put in there to fill that gap. Because Mm -hmm. it's like, because the movie is great. It leads up to this point. They get to the Icarus 1, they dock, they go through the whole thing. They find the dead crew. They have the docking incident. All this stuff happens. But then it's like, maybe 30 minutes a movie 20 minutes a movie that you have to you have to fill because you're only like an hour a movie at that point i mean this movie is is lean it's really a lean film you know how it's going to end and i think the ending is perfect i i I, like it's not even the whole third act i think the ending with him and the the payload and like the kind of beautiful romantic way they they visualize that is or they shoot that is 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 great so it's like it's really just like 20 minutes of film and I don't know what you would do. Like, I, I I, mean, I'm not, obviously not a professional in this stuff, but I. what else could you put in there? Is it mm-hmm. like, because what I'm thinking is, okay, it's another technical problem, but space movies and sci-fi movies are, it's, it's always just a technical problem. And it's like, this movie has so many technical problems that they solve to begin with. It would just seem like another one or another one, another one. I like that it's not a technical problem. Someone is trying to stab you. Mm-hmm. And that's, Kind of a different take on how this movie's going. and I like how they shift gears.
0: Yeah, it's not The Martian.
1: I know that's a that's a, a take that not everyone is going to like or agree with, but I, I've come to love the third act. Okay. I, I've come to appreciate the third act, because I don't know what else they could have done other than, like, have a sun god appear. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> okay, did, is, did, did, we, a, did we watch
0: all the deleted scenes here? Like, <laughs> it would just be really funny if the bomb goes off and the sun god, like, turns around and goes, Ow! <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's let's take this home because this is uh we're back to the long episodes i love it hopefully people that enjoy that uh, will get a, a kick out of it let's do our rating system this is where we rate the movies out of five and with james being all over letterboxd um i get a lot of used to you know rating things out of five right but here's how we do it we don't just do stars we tailor that rating system uh based on the plot that we just watched for these films so let's rate the core and sunshine uh with a scale of one out of five helpful nukes. One helpful nuke might get you out of a jam if your favorite flame is burning low, uh, but five helpful nukes is probably, you know, really no different than a Manhattan-sized amount, so it really will light up your day. Uh, you want to have five as backups anyways. Uh, let's start with The Core. Um, I give The Core 2.5. It's not a great movie, but it's a movie that I enjoyed many elements of. That I was, you know, I was slightly exaggerating some of my rant stuff but the nuke side of things was really annoying to me but overall i kind of enjoyed it even though i didn't understand some of the stuff it was fine uh i but it will never inch more than 2.5 but for a disaster b movie that's a uh, fine right in the middle here um three is average this is a slightly below average but for this kind of thing uh 2.5 is the way to go
1: yeah, Tim, I agree. I think 2.5 is seems fair. Um, it has a lot of cool moments. I love Aaron Eckhart. I love the whole idea of the ship. I love the concept. A lot of cool, like, fake science elements that are awesome, like, that really uh, scratch it for me. Where it falters, I think, is generally the entire premise Um <laughs> the cgi
0: is pretty bad this is where you pull off your face mask and your are hoffman yeah I, I i mean i don't
1: particularly care about the science elements it's it's a sci, it's a film it's fiction like that's that's good i, I just think like the there's a lot of plot holes here that they could shoot a big laser into which they <laughs> do um or they try to and it it sort of is guilty of like some of the worst movie tropes i think in yep. in late 90s early 2000s cinema so i think 2.5 is, is good I've watched it twice, enjoyed it twice, but it is, I think, your quintessential popcorn movie.
0: Sunshine, which is what you would apply to popcorn to make it pop. So I would give this a three on first viewing. I don't disagree, and I think this will improve, in my view, upon a second watch, which I will do this weekend. Just for me, I love the visuals and the tone of the movie. I started watching this movie fairly late in the evening after I put my kid to sleep, and I was going to pause it and then resume it the next day, but it was it drew me in so much that I just kept watching it. And I didn't go to bed until like 1.30 or something. To me, that's very late. I'm almost 40. It was very cool. I love the psychological part at the beginning. But once it became a thriller, horror, somewhat a killer on the loose, it was a, such a surprise. I didn't know anything about this. It was the first time I saw the movie. It threw me off so much and it really made me like oh, this is where we're landing on this. And I didn't really appreciate the what it was trying to do in terms of the religious allegories and that kind of other piece to it until really more reading later, talking to you now. I think it can raise this movie up to a four, and I want it to because I like the idea of this. I just wow. can't, I just can't uh, tell you when I was, first watched it really what that message was. It may have been just simply because I was too thrown off by what was happening with the, where they ultimately d- went with the direction uh, with, with Pinot Backer. Uh, this is the one of the readings I'm the most confused over and i think it will change but i have to be honest about what my first reaction to it was but i see here in the notes you have a different take
1: yeah no i'm gonna rate this movie a um a 4.9 on the sunshield percentage <laughs> um, <laughs> um sorry sorry to deviate from your skill uh but uh i know that'll kill me that'll kill me um but uh I love this movie. I think it's almost perfect, and it's probably firmly in my top five favorite movies of all time. It might be my favorite movie. Wow! Uh, and I know that's a bold, a bold statement, but uh, I it's just how I feel I feel about it. It's it makes me feel awesome, and I love watching it. The thriller portions are kind of a miss, but I've kind of come to respect them as a exciting way to frame the third act. I think in a more conventional sci-fi disaster movie, you'd have some technical problem they have to overcome. But this movie has a lot of technical problems. They have to solve all those things already. So it's, I think having these kind of like, this thriller or like interpersonal issues and drama, I think is is kind of a nice way to, to overcome that problem. And it's like, they're 93 million miles from Earth, but they still have to deal with a killer. I think is like kind of a, yeah, a cool a cool idea. So yeah, I I, lo- I love the film. I love Killian Murphy. I love Danny Boyle. One thing we didn't talk about this movie at all in this episode. I just have to mention it now because I won't get another opportunity to. Is the score is fantastic, amazing. The score is one of the boat one of the most like enveloping, amazing scores I've ever seen in film. And I'll, I'm going to reference something when we go to our recommended stuff. But they use the score in other movies. Hmm. This movie this movie was such a flop. They've they've licensed this amazing score to be used in other films. So it's like, it's just a beautiful score. And it, it, it totally, it makes the movie, the use of the score. Tim, I don't know if you, you have anything to say about that, but no, or- that's
0: I, I, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with most of that. I think this will improve for me. I don't think it will ever get to a, a almost five perfect movie, but I want to give it another shot, and I'm going to look forward to, I'm looking forward to rewatching it uh, over the weekend with a kind of a fresh eye, knowing what the twist is, and just letting more of the themes roll over me versus the what, this is this what we're doing. Okay, I thought we were doing something else. Um, some stuff that we'll recommend uh, to listeners to either read or watch later, somewhat related to the things we talked about today or maybe something in the genre I've got a handful of stuff I want to recommend and I think you do too probably from your long catalog of movies and things you purchased or watched recently maybe I recommend a movie I might have mentioned before but I love this film it's called Inaria A-N-I-A-R-A it's 2018 Swedish movie it's also based on a long like epic poem it's about a a spaceship it's like a resort ship it's on its way after the earth has been ravaged by climate change everybody's slowly leaving and going to Mars where they can live there instead this ship is as all the creature comforts that we see in in uh, on the Icarus 1 and 2 including like the earth room type thing of like a virtual reality think of earth calm down kind of situation but for something happens the ship gets off course the power goes out and they don't have power anymore and it's just slowly drifting off in the direction that it was going the crew and people essentially slowly go insane and it's it takes place you know, one year, five, ten, thirteen, twenty, 13, 20, and then all the way up to 5 million years later, what happens with this ship. And it is a really slow burn, very cool look at what people do uh, when they go insane on these kinds of situations. Really strongly recommend it. Second, I recommend a, a book by David Kagan from 1993 called Sunstroke. Uh, it is about a space solar power system that would draw it's a big solar power uh, satellite in space and then it generates electricity and zaps it down to a receiving station um, via microwaves as a constantly uh, energizing uh, energizer bunny power source it's an interesting take on real life science that people have been trying to build forever but of course it freaks out and becomes more like a military weapon uh, and and starts melting various parts of the world. So it reminded me of that scene uh, at the San Francisco. Uh, So if you want to see that visual or visualized in your head, again, in narrative fiction, uh, check out that book. I will also link to an article about in the New York Times from 1971 about those Soviet uh, nuclear blasts that put out the fire in the oil fields. And finally, I recommend a book, Similar to Sunshine, where the first two-thirds of it are amazing to me, and the final third, eh, I can take it or leave it, uh, by Neil Stevenson, called Seven Eves, and is essentially about, for some reason, the moon... Explodes. Earth has to deal with that. And most of it is involving Earth trying to uh, build a space system, space shuttle, and get as many people there as they can and try to keep humanity going, knowing that most people on Earth are going to die. Uh, it's a really fascinating book, and it just solves a lot of the similar technical component problems that they do in the core but also touches a bit on psychological components that are in um, the more like fatalistic components that are in Sunshine. So Seven Eves, uh, first two thirds of that book are amazing. The final third, it's fine. It kind of didn't really end anywhere. Uh, James, you got three things to recommend? I do, yeah.
1: So the first recommendation is another podcast. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Damn. I know. There's a podcast, which I think a lot of movie people will be familiar with, but it's the podcast is called Blank Check with Griffin and David. Um, they did a Sunshine episode on March 19th. Uh, they really go into a lot more of, the of this year, of this year. Yep. 2023, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they're really because they're doing a whole Danny Boyle. They, they pick a director and they do every movie in his uh, filmography. So they did Sunshine on March 19th. Uh, they go into a lot about the production of the film. Really good if you have an interest in how movies get made and why this one flopped um also a lot of info i've cribbed a little bit of it for this one just as teasers but a lot of good info about you know how they made the how they assembled the cast how they like a lot of how like most of this movie was like practical effects which is kind of unheard of the cgi in in sunshine why it looks so good is because and why it looks good for 40 million dollars is because they just said well take as long as you like like they didn't really have like a, a a deadline so they just they were kind of bottom of the priority list at the cgi houses but as a result, they got really good, really good stuff for very cheap. Just they just have to wait, which is a problem. If you've seen um, any of the Marvel films of the
0: last mm-hmm. five years, uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, my, <laughs> my next, I mean, Chris Evans and Benedict Wong want to knock down your door, but fair enough. That's,
1: that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've there's two Marvel stars in this in this movie. It's it's a crazy cast. But anyway, if you want if you want more like the movie stuff, like the movie nerd stuff, listen to that episode. March nineteenth, blank check, really good episode. The next one is a little. Ad Astra, twenty nineteen, Brad Pitt. Um, I think this movie and Sunshine are in like kind of the same universe of elevated sci-fi that's grounded, realistic, but that still has a lot of. It's still a lot of fun. I'd also say much earlier. This I mean, it's a recommendation, but like like Contact is kind of in the same realm. Um, Interstellar to a certain extent, but like that's a little up its it's it's a little weird mm-hmm. um, but I think like Ad Astra I think in this movie are really good like examples of how you make kind of a cool sci-fi movie modern that feels like not too distant from where we are that that, that feel but also feels like it feels tangible to me that's one of my favorite things about Sunshine is that it feels tangible Ad Astra also feels tangible and it's like I think that's that's what I like about both those films. So I recommend that. I'm sure everyone has seen it, but not really a blockbuster. But it's I, I,
0: I haven't seen it yet. It's been on my uh, like occasionally. We'll be on like HBO Max, and I'll put it on the watch list, and it pops off. I will have to make sure that goes up higher.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really good. 2019, James Gray. I definitely watch it. And then just the Danny Boyle recommendation, 1996, Train Spotting, his second movie. It's about living in scotland during the late 1980s and being addicted to heroin <laughs> and uh i think one of the best things about danny boyle the director is that he can really do anything i mean he made train spotting in 1996 he did 28 days later so he did it he did a uh he did a kind of a local like drug drama comedy then he goes he makes 28 days later like a zombie movie then he goes and shoots sunshine a 40 million dollar uh space movie and then he goes and makes slum, Slumdog Millionaire yep. <laughs> and he wins an Oscar. So it's it's fun watching his filmography just because he can do so many things. And I think it's one of those things. He's like such a such an incredible artist and director that if you can do things that are so different. I mean, it's just a master of the craft. He's one of my favorite directors. So I think watching his second film and his like kind of, it's not a weird film, but it's just like an awesome, it's an awesome movie. And it's yeah. really quick. It's a 90, 93 minute movie. So watch Spotting*.
0: So many of Danny Boyle's movies involve someone, you know, hurting their arm or hand, like, you know, transpotting, injecting heroin into it. Uh, (laughs) In this movie, we watch Sunshine, poor uh, Chris Evans' hand gets frozen. And, you know, and then uh, in 127 hours, you know, it's all about (laughs) installing off your hand. And I'm pretty sure also at one point, too, they cut off someone's arm in, uh, you know, 28 days later or whatever. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's a zombie that loses an arm so, in that movie. So yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what this guy, you know, tickets cost an arm and a leg uh, when you when when go see a Danny <laughs> Boyle movie. James, thanks so much for talking to me today and coming on the podcast here. Any, anything you want to plug? Do you want to tell people where they can find your litter box? Yeah. Uh, so thanks,
1: Tim. Happy to be on this sort of uh, first episode as co host um, you can find me on Letterboxd. That's a, a social media like site for for film nerds. You can find me on there at letterboxd.com. And then my name is Thok Thok on there. So that's T-H-O-K-K, T-H-O-K-K, no spaces. So that's Thok Thok, T-H-O-K-K. T-H-O-K-K. So I, I
0: follow it because I follow what movies you're watching uh, in this like ambitious list. It's very entertaining. And you put your thoughts are really fun into it.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, I put my thoughts up there. I don't do ratings. I don't rate anything. I just say if I like it or I don't like it. And then I, I, I put my thoughts. So that's uh that's up there. So, yeah, that's that's the only thing I want to plug, I guess.
0: Cool. Well, you passed the the test as co-host. we will definitely looking forward to our next. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, so, again, thanks again. I
1: appreciate Now, I think the next one you said we were going to do uh, made Manhattan because of the. Men- I think. Yeah. It's a Manhattan Project movie, right? We're just going to. We're just going to.
0: You know, we just want to make sure.
1: We just want to make sure there's not a mention there, right? That's you know, just, we have to
0: prep for uh, the uh, Manhattan Project movie. Um, that's coming right. out later.
1: So we have to watch everything that has the word Manhattan in it just to make sure they don't make reference, right?
0: And also, we have to watch the original um, live-action Mario Brothers movies because that one is uh, Dino-Hatton. So we've got to make sure maybe the dinosaurs invent something nuclear-wise. We just want to make sure all of our bases are covered.
1: It, it just makes it's good sense.
0: Yep. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or maybe I just didn't understand that it would be scary to have a man uh, with no skin running after you with a magic scalpel. I get it. Now I get it. There are a couple ways you can contact the show. Twitter at Nuclear Podcast is where I tweet these days, thinking about deleting it uh, because Twitter sucks. But uh, it is one of the best ways I get to do connect with people. I also have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com. And I am going to get better, I promise, at responding to people's excellent, excellent messages on our email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And James Sheehan. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, it may take four months between episodes, but we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Cheers.